Terry McLaurin is the most underrated wide receiver in the NFL. No one rates him properly. I would dare guess that even Terry McLaurin does not rate Terry McLaurin high enough. He's top 12 in receptions and receiving yards, but he's only the wide receiver 18 in fantasy football because two touchdowns and a 4.9 target quality rating, number 85 in the league, that factors in target depth and factors in catchable target rate. Quarterback play in Washington has been bad, and yet he's a top 20 wide receiver. How? He's hogging the targets. 16.4 hog rate is top 15, and he's getting all the air yards in Washington. What air yards there are, Terry McLaurin's capturing them. 46.2% air yard share. Number one in the league. Number one in the league. And he does it because he's running all the routes. 100% of the routes that are available, he has run. That's what it means to have a 100% route participation rate. And he's one of the few receivers, one of five, with a 30-plus percent target share. So he's getting all the targets. He's commanding all the targets down the field. And, and, 273 yards after the catch is top five. So it's all these downfield targets. He's hogging them all. And then he's maximizing yards after the catch. That's how he's overcoming poor target accuracy, and an anemic offense. And given the advanced metrics, it's clear that Terry McLaurin is one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. He's a top wide receiver talent. It's not up for dispute. And he is officially a top 10 wide receiver in Dynasty. You say, oh, well, Allen Robinson's outproducing him, and Chris Godwin and Justin Jefferson and Calvin Ridley could be higher, should be higher. Ridley's outscoring him. Godwin's younger, Jefferson's much younger. No, no, he, he's in his prime. We're looking at the next three years. Terry McLaurin, his age 26, 27, and 28 seasons. He's only 25.2 years old. That's why we have the age fractions on playerprofiler.com. He just turned 25, and he's giving you 16 fantasy points per game. He's three years younger than DeAndre Hopkins, and producing just four fantasy points per game less in the worst possible conditions. It's the easiest thing in the world to imagine a major quarterback upgrade happening in Washington somehow, some way, and then Terry McLaurin just popping up to 20-plus fantasy points a game next season. That's why he's a top-10 fantasy receiver. Welcome, Stephon Diggs. Welcome, Terry McLaurin, to the top-10 dynasty receivers. And the big question is, can DJ Moore hold on? And the answer is barely, barely. He's not producing. When healthy, Michael Thomas produces. When healthy, Devontae Adams is by far and away the best wide receiver in the sport. He's outproducing even 2019 Michael Thomas. No one would dispute having DK Metcalf, CeeDee Lamb, and A.J. Brown, the future of the position in the top 10. And you're not going to kick out Tyreek Hill or DeAndre Hopkins at this point. They still have a number of good years left. They're still at the peak of their powers. So if you move McLaurin in and you move Stephon Diggs in, at that point, DJ Moore is just scrambling for a toehold. He's right there with Amari Cooper saying, hey man, this season's not going our way, is it? We're holding on somehow, some way. We still have our fingernails in the top 12 in Dynasty. So check it out, playerprofiler.com forward slash player rankings to see where all these players slot in based on their lifetime value. And as the years progress, as we project out to 2021, 2022, those years are more heavily discounted. It's really this year and the next 
two to three years that we care about. Those are the seasons that drive the projected lifetime value rating. And it's time to come to Jesus on Terry McLaurin. And it's time to come to Jesus on Darnell Mooney. Darnell Mooney is going to be the greatest riser this week in the rankings. Terry McLaurin's lifetime value is rising fastest, but it's Mooney's ranking that's rising fastest because when you're in the top 25, you gain 20 lifetime value points. That might only change your ranking eight or nine spots. But if you go up 20 lifetime value points from the bottom half of the wide receiver rankings, you can jump up 30, 40, 50 spots because we rank 150 receivers. Now, Mooney wasn't in the bottom half, but he's going to pass a lot of guys because go to the game log on playerprofiler.com. Check it out. Mooney only has two weeks with more than 10 fantasy points. Like, oh, darn it, Mooney. Yawn. Not interested. The only wide receiver worth rostering in fantasy football on the Bears is Allen Robinson. And if not Allen Robinson, you want a tight end, you want Jimmy Graham. How am I supposed to know who's going to get the secondary targets in any given week? Is it going to be Anthony Miller? Miller had 11 targets in week eight. And then last week, it was Mooney getting the 11 targets. How am I supposed to know? Why do I care about Darnell Mooney? You care about Darnell Mooney because you care about the air yards. 192 air yards in week seven, 102 air yards in week eight, 116 air yards in week nine. That's why you care about Darnell Mooney. And I am heartbroken, heartbroken the Bears are playing on Monday night and they're not on the main slate for DFS because we would be heavy, heavy, heavy exposure to Darnell Mooney as we did last week. It was a great process. He got the 11 targets. He gave you the air yards. Just didn't deliver the fantasy points because the catch rate was below 50%. The yardage was low, no touchdown. Was that his fault? Likely not. Remember, his quarterback is Nick Foles. He's commanding the targets and he's commanding targets down the field. That's the priority. That's what Terry McLaurin does. That's what Darnell Mooney does. And then you worry about the quarterback play later. That's secondary. In a vacuum, Darnell Mooney is definitively good. He's comparable to to Paul Richardson on playerprofiler.com. And I said, oh, well, to Paul Richardson, he was never that good. Paul Richardson's career was derailed by injuries. It's not like Paul Richardson was a bad player. We don't know what Paul Richardson would have been had he not suffered multiple ACL tears. What we do know about Darnell Mooney is early breakout, 92nd percentile breakout age, and was dominant at the college level, ran a 4-3-8. That was 96th percentile. So if you're looking for day three wide receivers third and fourth round of your dynasty rookie draft you want to zero in on the athleticism and specifically the 40 time especially small receivers if they're not fast their probability of hitting declines precipitously athleticism matters speed matters especially to wide receivers that are under 200 pounds now Mooney will never be Terry McLaurin because Terry McLaurin is 200 pounds Terry McLaurin will operate as the alpha in Washington for the next five years but can Darnell Mooney, live up to his comps, Paul Richardson, T.Y. Hilton, John Brown, Deshaun Jackson, Tyler Lockett, absolutely. Every week, another rookie receiver breaks out. In week nine, it was Jerry Judy. Who's it going to be this week? Why not Darnell Mooney? He's next. Just wish he was on the main slate. Now on the main slate, we do have interesting characters that you can play. Winning that wide receiver three slot with value under 4K on DraftKings is critical to consistently hitting the pay line in the Millie Maker. Look at last week. Of the 20 suggested lineups, 
on playerprofiler.com's DFS lineup genius, 50% hit the pay line across a number of different quarterback combinations. How? How? Playing wide receivers like David Moore at 3.1K, he delivered 17.1 fantasy points. He was a WR2 at 3.1K. If you can find those sub-4K top 25 wide receivers, that is the skeleton key to delivering positive expected value in the Millie Maker and many other DFS contests, but specifically, specifically the DraftKings Millie Maker because pricing is so tight on DraftKings, it forces you to hit on these inexpensive upside wide receivers. And David Moore has an 88th percentile speed score with a 78th percentile college dominator. So he is in the middle of that Venn diagram of size-adjusted athleticism and the age-adjusted college dominance. He is a proper alpha at 220 pounds. If anything happens to Metcalf or Lockett, David Moore is going to be a top 20 wide receiver in fantasy football. That's why he's the singular handcuff wide receiver. There's only one handcuff wide receiver in the NFL, and it's David Moore. And we're going to keep playing David Moore in DFS. His price rose nominally, but not enough to not play him. You want to keep playing David Moore. This week, we project Jalen Ramsey to match up with DK Metcalf. Could be a boom week for David Moore and a boom week for Tyler Lockett. Tyler Lockett is the ultimate boom-bust wide receiver. In fact, his weekly volatility rating on playerprofiler.com, you go to the game log tab, you see weekly volatility. 17.7 volatility rating is number one among all NFL players. I've never seen a volatility rating this high. That's a volatility rating you'll see through three weeks where a guy has a 40-point week and then a three-point week and then a two-point week. Okay, but through nine weeks when your last six are eight, 7, 53, 8, 6, 37. That's how you get to that point. His two weeks already as the number one wide receiver in fantasy football. He did it in week three. He did it in week seven. And this week, he will see less Jalen Ramsey than DK Metcalf. So he is going to deliver upside at value on DraftKings. Look at the difference in price between Lockett and Metcalf. Metcalf, 7.6K against a Rams team that gives up the least fantasy points to opposing wide receivers. Lock it down to 6.5K. So you're gaining 1.1K that you can allocate elsewhere by playing Lockett over Metcalf. Odds are Lockett's going to give you 10 fantasy points. But if he doesn't, he could give you 40. But there are others under that 4K threshold that you can look at. KJ Hamler. KJ Hamler is starting to percolate. And we called Darnell Mooney arbitrage K.J. Hamler. It's now looking like K.J. Hamler is arbitrage Darnell Mooney. But unlike David Moore facing a difficult matchup, Hamler gets the Raiders. Converted safety LaMarcus Joyner will match up with K.J. Hamler. Doesn't have the speed to hang with Hamler. He didn't run at the combine, but we project him to run about a 4-3-2. His snap share has been 70% or above the last two weeks. And he's run 38 routes in week eight and then 36 routes in week nine. And he's stretching the field, commanding air yards. Last week, 102 air yards. He's still just 3.8K on DraftKings. Now, we played Steven Sims last week because Steven Sims typically is pegged at around 4K on DraftKings. But his first week back from IR, it's only 3K. So you take that $1,000 discount, play some Steven Sims, sprinkle him in. Unfortunately, it was Cam Sims. Cam Sims, 
that went over 100 yards, not Steven Sims. But I think we're going to go back to the Steven Sims well. New quarterback in Washington may prefer Steven Sims to Cam Sims because Steven Sims is just better. So he's still at 3K. I think he's better than Cam Sims and a better bet to outproduce Cam Sims this week. And my guest today, Matthew Friedman, has been talking about Jakeem Grant since he entered the league. Jakeem Grant has wheels, runs a 4-4-2, and Preston Williams is highly questionable this week. And if Preston Williams does not play, that means Jakeem Grant slides in to the number two wide receiver role, which is exciting. He's undersized and does not have the ceiling that a KJ Hamler does. But if he's starting and Casey Hayward shadows Devontae Parker, why wouldn't Jakeem Grant get peppered with targets? And at 3K, that can provide incredible value. And finally, Jalen Guyton. We played some Jalen Guyton last week, hoping Herbert would hit him with a deep bomb. He did not, but you look beyond the box score, you see 89% snap share, so Guyton's on the field. Most pass plays, 35, 35, 39, and 36 routes run the last four weeks. Think about that. That's all we need. That's all At 3K, you're just looking for 12-plus fantasy points. Well, how do you get to 12-plus fantasy points? One catch for 60 yards and a touchdown is 13 fantasy points. That's all it takes. And Guyton already has two games this year with 100-plus air yards, or at least close to that. 97 air yards in Week 8, 121 air yards in Week 5, and he's getting targeted. He has four weeks with three or more targets. And Cody Carpenter has been talking about Jalen Guyton for weeks. You need to listen to the Undercovered Ops show, which drops every Friday morning. Cody breaks down all those number three wide receiver battles that matter. Who's running heavy routes with Justin Herbert? Who's on the field a lot with Patrick Mahomes? Who's getting deep targets from Russell Wilson. Those are the opportunities that can provide edge, and that's Cody Carpentier's specialty. So this is it. You play some Jalen Guyton. He gets you 15-plus fantasy points. That allows you to move up and afford another stud. The competitive advantage you have on the field is you're playing an additional stud over the competition. It lets you move up to fit an Aaron Jones. allows you to move up to fit a Terry McLaurin this week. Those are two of the highest upside plays on the slate, Aaron Jones, McLaurin. If you subscribe to the Plays of the Week email from the Podfather, just be a subscriber on Player Profiler or contribute on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash podfather, you get the Plays of the Week email. And spoiler alert, the lock button's going to be Terry McLaurin facing the Lions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we're going to go right back to the well on our Hail Mary of the Week, and it's going to be Jalen Guyton. Spoiler alert! And when you use a platform like Prediction Strike... The Jalen Guytons of the world are hugely undervalued, but that's not where I would invest because Prediction Strike allows you to invest in players as if they were stocks. I would invest in Jakeem Grant. Jakeem Grant has not produced any fantasy points this year, but he has the potential with Tua now at quarterback with the speed that he has in a starting role. This would be the week to play a Jakeem Grant. Invest in him on Prediction Strike. Go to PredictionStrike.com, use their promo code UNDERWORLD, and you can get 10 free investment bucks and use them toward a Jakeem Grant play. And I talked about Walter Picks on an earlier show. Walter Picks looks at all the projections of all the services around the industry and all the prop plays, and then they zero in on just the best. Last week, they were 6 for 8, right? They were 65% hit rate, zeroing in on the props with the most edge. The edgiest props out there. So get the app now. 
WalterPicks.com forward slash player profiler. And the beauty is both Prediction Strike and Walter Picks have apps. So when I go to my phone, I go to the folder. Oh, can invest in players on Prediction Strike. And then I click the other icon and I see the top eight props of the week. And I see Jerry Judy over 68 yards. Okay, take it, take it, take it. And we include the prop of the week from Walter Picks in the Podfather's Plays of the Week email. This week, I'm hoping to see Jakeem Grant. He might be in there. He might not. I don't know. We'll see if Vegas and the sports books are on top of it. Are they woke or are they asleep? They were asleep at the wheel on Jerry Judy last week. We'll see if they'll be woke this week. And talking about props, the best guy to talk to on this topic, Matthew Friedman from the Action Network. Get the action at the Action Network. The prop action. Now, advance warning for all listeners. We do not talk football on this show for the first 20 plus minutes. Just a warning, if you want to hear us talk about social media strategy and run a post-mortem on some of my most viral tweets, listen to the first part of the show, but also feel free to fast forward to your football talk. If you're not here to listen to two guys dissect the at fantasy underscore mansion Twitter account, no shame fast forwarding this week. But for those that are interested in social media strategy and personal brand management, I do think the entire show of course, is a well worthwhile listen. And be sure to follow Matthew Friedman at Matt F. The Oracle on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. My greatest nemesis, yes, yes. Many years he and I have done battle, jousted over the airwaves. That's right, that's right. It is Matthew Friedman from Fantasy Labs. And now the Action Network, he is here to bring the show to a screeching halt and check my ego. That's right. The great checker of egos and the great extinguisher of hot takes, bringing us back to reality. Matthew Friedman, you're not welcome on the show, but I love having you. Talk to me. I prefer a blanket of wetness as my title. But uh, all of those other titles that you used also work. The wet blanket. That's right. Well, I mean, you were the one who came up with this, but I'm the wet blanket that gets, uh, I think, foisted upon the hot takes. That's right. Uh, and and extinguishes them. Yes. Any any take that is hotter than it should be, the wet blanket emerges to extinguish any hotness and bring it completely back to a level. So I can't get out of control with my hyperbole. You are the great controller of the Podfather hyperbole. Welcome. And by welcome, I mean I'm going to hate this, but I'm going to love it. Uh, This is very par for the course so far. I have questions. First and foremost, my hottest election take is that Donald Trump would have won had he just deleted his Twitter account on Inauguration Day 2017. Do you agree? Uh, wow, that's interesting. I, I do not agree, but I think he has served himself well by having the platform with which he can communicate directly to his people. And I don't know how many votes he really lost because of Twitter, Like, I think if not for coronavirus, he probably wins the election. That's right. That's right. But I think even with coronavirus, he would have won anyway had he just stayed off Twitter because many did not vote for Biden. They voted against Trump. And 
It was just one tweet too many. It was just this dripping water into a bucket, and then eventually there was a tweet at one point, whether it was tweeting about Joe Scarborough's wife's facelift. <laughs> it was something. It was something. It was something, a horse face of some kind. There was a tweet that just put the educated suburban voters over the edge because that's where he experienced his greatest losses were educated suburbanites. I contend it was just one tweet too many that he would have been fine if he'd got, but I don't believe that he was capable. I don't believe he was capable of controlling himself and that the behavior on Twitter was what those found most undignified. I think he could have been rude and smeared at the podium. For some reason, seeing these things written down on social media, talking about a woman's facelift, or other egregious, non-presidential accusations, I just think that was what sent millions of votes in the Joe Biden direction. Okay, so one, I forgot about all of the different kind of Twitter controversies around Donald Trump that have popped up over the last four years. Cause it, it feels like every week there's, there's something. Uh, but, and, and you're right that like, it is a rather kind of undignified use of the office for a lot of this stuff to be put out there on Twitter. However, I think that a lot of people who, who like the president probably like having direct access to him via Twitter. And I would think that I don't think it matters. Like, I think the, the people who voted against him didn't do it because it was like one too many tweets. I think they were going to vote against him anyway. And the people who voted for him, uh, I think they probably like uh, that they they can see directly on Twitter what it is that he's thinking at really any time he decides to tweet. Those that voted against him, the theme was I'm just exhausted. I'm just exhausted. And I think that the constant flow of tweets that many believe were unbefitting of a president in the United States contributed greatly to the exhaustion. I mean, I think that's uh, I think that's fair, I should say. And, and you know this, but like I'm not a uh, political expert or anything like this. Like I just, you know, I, I'm a dude who barely knows enough about football. Uh, anything that has to do with politics is just sort of, uh, above and beyond. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think Twitter really factored into the outcome of the election. I do agree with you that it factored into, uh, the weight that people who, uh, weren't fans of the president felt for the past four years. You're not a political expert and you're not a Twitter expert either. And I know that you're not a Twitter <laughs> expert. Because you routinely waste 30 minutes every week, at least once a week, you waste 30 minutes answering questions from individual tweeters. Why do you do this? Okay, this is this is good. Why? One, I, I want to kind of push back a little bit. Like, is it a waste? I don't know. Like this, this offseason, I decided that uh, I would be more active on social media. Uh, and so I've had good results with this with doing the daily AMAs. Like I've done it literally every day for a little more than the past three months. Uh, I've every had much day? more every day. I've had oh much more God. engagement I... on Twitter. Oh now, now look, like this is, this is the conversation. All right. I've had much more engagement on Twitter. Uh, if you and I were going to have a conversation without the audio rolling, uh, and we did that for 60 minutes, it's not as if I would say, well, that was a waste, but 
it would it would be something of a waste. But if we're recording, uh, then all of a sudden it's content. And I, I think it's a little bit like that with the Twitter AMAs. Uh, if I were just DMing with someone who asked their questions and I answered, that would be a waste. But since it's out there in the open where people can view it and interact with it, uh, since it's essentially content that's on Twitter instead of on Fantasy Labs or Action Network, I don't think that it's a waste. And, and it provides direct access to people, which I think has value. Now, maybe it's not worth the time that I'm, I'm putting into it. Like that is, that is very possible, but I think it is. And, and even if it isn't, it's something that I can do that creates goodwill, hopefully for me and action network and fantasy labs by extension. Now I should say, uh, we have different strategies on this and I would like to get your thoughts on it because I, you know, in previous seasons, I never used to answer questions on Twitter Ever. because I, th I thought that I just didn't have the time for it. And, and, and in all fairness, in previous years, I really didn't have the time for it. Busy some, things, some things are a little bit different now where I've just kind of carved out the time and the schedule to do this, and now I can do it. And part of my self-justification for not answering questions in the past was that you, you never answered questions. And I, I sort of, I actually admired the, the clear line that you had of like, hey, it's not worth my time. So like, I'm going to maximize the time that I have. And this is something that I've decided to push to the side. And I should say, that's a fair perspective to have. Like for you, it might not be worth your time, especially, especially since you have the patrons who pay to get your insight, who pay for direct access. You provide value to your patrons in part by not making yourself so available to people on Twitter. You are focused on that revenue. I should say, you know, at, at Action and Fantasy Labs, we have a lot of content that is for free. And so part of the strategy of having that free content is building audience. And so I would say that by doing the AMAs, I have a chance of building the audience, uh, which is kind of more important right now. But one, one question in all of this, even if you have the strategy of not answering questions on, on Twitter. And I think it's a strategy. You're a smart person. You don't do anything without thinking about it or having some sort of guiding principle. Even if you have this strategy, why do you have to be such a dick? And I say that with great respect as someone who knows you, uh, and is, uh, a friend, but you know, why, why is the whole dick thing a part of your shtick? Like, why are you a dick to people uninformed enough who dare to ask you a question on Twitter? Like, like the guy a couple of weeks ago, you just ripped into him. And oh. on the one hand, I saw the humor there. Okay. On the other hand, it, on the other hand, it wasn't called for, you know, like why, why indulge the worst part of your personality? Why, why are you a dick? Well, we have two questions here. One is, do I agree with your strategy of answering questions on Twitter? And number two, why have I decided to become the Don Rickles of fantasy Twitter? And I think the answers are similar. And I will revise my statement from before. It's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. I believe for me to answer questions on Twitter, it would be suboptimal, be a suboptimal use of time. But it's not, it's not worthless by any stretch. And your goal is to create engagement. And you certainly do that on Twitter. When you post a tweet, I'll answer your questions for 30 minutes. That's the tweet. And then you have replies to that tweet. And then your replies to those replies. Twitter scores tweets based on engagement. And engagement can be generated via replies, likes, and retweets. 
So you're guaranteeing at least one tweet per day will score highly by Twitter's engagement metrics. And that has value. I personally do not believe that Twitter presents replies to tweets in a way that allows them to be useful after the AMA concludes. And they're just not evergreen enough for me to put in 30 minutes of time. That's why I don't do it. But I do host AMAs. I host AMAs on Reddit because on Reddit, you can announce the AMA at nine o'clock AM. Say, I'm going to be conducting an AMA at 1 p.m. So then you give the Redditites four hours to post their questions, and then within those replies, they're allowed to up and down vote them, which automatically creates a prioritized list of questions that then I can attack for a full hour. The reason I do it on Reddit and not Twitter is because I feel like Reddit is underserved by myself and our brand. There's great engagement there, and it is one of the most sophisticated, if not the most sophisticated user community in all of fantasy football, and it just doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And so what I say is, listen, Dynasty Reddit, which is the subreddit that I think is the most sophisticated of all of them and aligns best with Roto Underworld and myself, I say, hey, Dynasty Reddit in the offseason, I'm going to do a number of these AMAs to make up for my lack of engagement and presence during the football season. And the beauty is those AMAs that are hosted in the offseason are evergreen. Those opinions and answers to questions about dynasty teams and prospects and potential trade opportunities, especially in dynasty, those stay relevant for months. And those AMAs continue to get traffic and additional engagement for weeks and weeks after they conclude. So that has real value on a platform that I believe I need to pay more attention to and I need to engage with more than I am now. And I found the best way to do that is with the AMAs because of the way they manage the questions and the way that the entire AMA itself is presented on a single screen and all of the questions and replies are prioritized based on the up and down vote functionality that Reddit provides that Twitter does not. That sounds great. And I totally get the AMA Reddit strategy. Oh yeah. I just want to make sure that everyone knows I'm not against AMAs. It makes, it makes perfect sense, both in terms of allowing the users to upvote and downvote and, and prioritize the outline for you. Uh, and then also the fact that you are creating uh, evergreen responses or pseudo evergreen, at least responses that last more than a week. Uh, and so I think that is a really smart way of, of doing AMAs. Uh, and it's something that uh, I actually, because of, of the way you've put it out there so perfectly, it's something I might look into. I should say I have resisted doing AMAs on Reddit just because years ago, I mean, I, I can hold the grudge like no one can believe, but uh, years ago, Reddit uh, was very unfriendly to uh, to Rotoviz when we were trying to get stuff kind of up and started. Uh, and so I've just, I've carried that forever. Uh, and maybe I should just let that one go and uh, go to Reddit and, and start doing some AMAs. But all of that Mix it makes up. perfect, all of that makes perfect sense. I understand why you would put it on Reddit and not on Twitter. So when I go to use the Twitter machine, I have the same goal that you have, which is to create engagement. But I have found that if I spend 30 minutes sending 
information-based tweets that highlight the information on playerprofiler.com. It creates brand awareness for Roto Underworld and engagement for the Podfather. And when you score those tweets, I can pump out 10 advanced metrics-based info tweets that in aggregate would create more likes and retweets than a single 30-minute AMA with all the corresponding responses. So from a time management and a return on investment of that time spent on social media, I could never justify hosting an AMA on Twitter, especially during the season where the content is fleeting and it expires hours, days, at most a week after it's posted. I see that. And I, I think that's fair. Uh, and see, I, I knew you had a, a strategy for it. And I should say, uh, I'm imagining that you are right for for you and for your business. And I'm imagining that if I took your strategy and applied it to me, I might have better overall engagement as well. But there is something that I do like about the direct interaction with uh with the people on twitter that you don't get if you spend 30 minutes focusing on your you know five to ten tweets uh that provide good information and you know maybe a couple of them will actually go viral and that will be really good um but you just you don't get the interaction with people and i think that that is something that people actually like whether it's actually useful to them or not that who, who knows right because they could just look at the rankings Right. I don't know if it's actually useful, but I do think that they actually enjoy knowing that they can put the tw- the, the question out there on Twitter and that uh, an actual human might respond to them uh, and, and give them an answer, especially like in the coronavirus era where people are just basically holed up in their houses and they don't get as much interaction. I think there's something that is actually kind of useful in that, even if it's not optimal. Uh, I, I would I certainly wouldn't say that I am. I am using my time optimally here on Twitter, but I would say that it's not a waste. And I think it's something that does, does create goodwill. It can't be a waste because followers have real value, more value than most people imagine. PC Magazine reported that Twitter followers are worth $2.50 per month. Think about that. That's $30 a year per follower. If you're picking up 10 followers, that's 300 bucks for that year that you just pocketed with that 30-minute AMA. That's 300 bucks an hour. So it's not worthless at all. I was mocking you because that's what I do and that's what we do, but you know and I know that quality time spent on social media, if it's used to fulfill a goal, which is engagement, you are adding value to yourself as a personal brand. And for me, I seek to add value in two ways to my own personal brand and the larger Roto Underworld brand. So I have a dual purpose when I'm on social media. And I agree that the anticipation of a question being answered juices up your engagement score with Twitter. The idea that on any given tweet, you could get X number of replies, likes, retweets. Twitter builds that into their algorithm and they're more likely to suggest that a new Twitter user follow you. They're more likely to surface a tweet that someone that's connected to someone else liked, even if they didn't retweet it. So you're going to end up on more people's timeline because Twitter is identifying you as a user in the space that 
individuals are engaging with. So you are doing yourself a great service, and it is not a waste of time. I was, saying, I was not being serious. You are doing a great service. What I do is similar in that instead of just asking a question to a big fantasy media personality like a Matthew Barry or a Brad Evans or even a J.J. Zacharyson, Evan Silva, those tweets will often simply go unanswered. You answer them. I will use them to create content. So I believe that I'm getting more use out of those questions than almost anyone else. We could argue whether you get more use out of them or I get more use. But when I quote tweet that question and mock that user, the worst that can happen is that user unfollows me and then, oh, well. But it creates a sense of community around everyone else that follows me that, hey, I get this. I've been to a Don Rickles show before. I know this is part of the act. And this poor unsuspecting fellow that happened to sit down close to the stage, had no idea what he was in for, and it makes it all the more uproarious and makes those individuals more likely to engage in future tweets and then eventually visit Patreon where they know that I will engage in a genuine way. So it's part of brand building in a way that churns those random questions from random individuals that no one really cares about, no one really wants to answer. You're making lemons out of lemonade, I'm churning them into something else. Whereas those that are too stretched for time and they're too inundated by those looking for free advice in their mentions, they're not in a position to reap any value from those. We happen to be able to reap value from those questions. We just do them in different ways. The shame of it is that I rarely get questions any longer. Like I have now exhausted the shtick to such an extent that most people are now in on the joke, and rarely do I get a question on Twitter. And so maybe it's time to retire the bit. I don't know. In theory, the worst thing that could happen is uh, you lose that follower. But that's, I mean, not actually what happened. Uh, you got tremendous pushback from some other people in the industry, and I would venture to say that you lost probably, uh, I don't know, I'm sure you know the exact number of people you lost, but... Did you lose maybe 150, 200 followers? I calculated that I, I think I lost 75 followers, gained 25 followers. But my argument is those individuals were not going to engage anyway. These were the fringiest of the fringe. They were already on the verge of unfollowing. And this was just that final drop, that final Trump tweet that just tipped over the bucket. But by those who were outraged, quote tweeting to virtue signal to their audience, they are inadvertently introducing me to Twitter users that had never heard of the Podfather and have a different sensibility. And they click on my timeline and they scroll through it. And they realize, oh, wow, this guy's fascinating. This is interesting. And I actually pick up more super fans from that attempted cancellation, a negative virality than not. So you could net lose 25, 50 followers and gain customers. How's that for a rationalization, by the way? Uh, it's, it's fine. Not great, but I'll, I'll let it go. Do you, I, I think you enjoy, I think you enjoy being the dick, which is, which is fine. Well, that's the other thing. I had so much enjoyment from seeing these quote tweeters, virtue signal and act so fraudulently using hyperbole. To describe me, I was using hyperbole, and then they object 
to my tweet and attempt to cancel me with their own hyperbole. No, man, if you think this is abhorrent, then you have no idea what abhorrent actually is. It's also a great exercise in revealing the desperate frauds in the industry, which I thought was valuable to us all. So I did a great service there, another rationalization. But in the end, I love it. When it happens, I'm on the phone with a lot of my friends and we're just laughing and going through the responses. And listen, man, it's an endorphin rush. It really is an endorphin rush to see hundreds of people outraged at something that's not a big deal and then them direct that vitriol at you. For me, I get great pleasure from it. I know others would be horrified by it and they wouldn't have the stomach for it. And that's why I'm me and they're not. <laughs> All right. All right. I mean, I, I don't know if, if you went the full distance of addressing why you are a dick, but I, I think we, we pretty it's much a talked around persona. it. It's a persona that's necessary. This industry is full of sweethearts and so much so that for many years since I started, there's been a culture of we need to support each other and be positive. And I am hugely supportive of so many in the industry, especially behind the scenes. But I saw that there was this square on the board that no one was standing on that really needed to be occupied, which was fuck your questions. <laughs> and whether it's Don Rickles, whether it's Anthony Jeselnik, in every community, in every space, that person often thrives. And if that square was unoccupied, I'm happy to take it. I have the personality to occupy it. I'm in the right space, right? It's a calling, Matt. Would you want anyone else doing this? <laughs> I think this has been a really great conversation. Would I want anyone else to do it in this space? Could anyone else do this as well as you do? Maybe. I don't know. Like maybe there are people out there who could be a dick as well as you are, but they choose not to do it. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't come quite as naturally to them uh, as it does to you. Uh, it seems like it, it does really align with your personality uh, to where maybe the the persona and your actual personality aren't all that different. But I mean, there, there, there are slight differences there, of course. I think you're not quite a uh, cantankerous asshole in real life as you are, uh, you know, on your podcast and on social media. But uh, I don't I don't know, actually, if the industry needs the service that you provide <laughs> in terms in, in terms of the color. Like in terms of the analysis, you, you provide great content and your site is amazing. And you know, the, the content, the, the podcast that you do is great. I just don't know if the world needs this negativity, although maybe it does. I think there are people who do, who do really resonate with the way that you look at things and the way that you phrase things. And, uh, I think it's smart at a minimum. It's smart as a strategy to really swerve in that direction and to get those people. And then even if it's not a strategy, even if it's just Matt Kelly being Matt Kelly and doing what naturally is there for him, uh, I think that's probably still smart because you free yourself up to be yourself. And uh, as long as you are doing that and that's something that is real, I think there will be people who uh, who like that and who are attracted to it. So it's it's probably smart it's not the way that I would, I would go about it, but you know, it's, it's something that, that you've done well. No, no one can deny 
that you are one of the best dickheads in the fantasy industry. Thank you. I, that's the greatest compliment I've ever received in the history of the show. I, I think a critical criteria that people don't think about is that I'm in my 40s. So I've lived. Like You're I've a man. failed. I've been fired from jobs. I've had ventures that have failed. I've had investments that have failed. I've had great successes. And I've had a lot of life experience where I can be self-assured in this persona. Yeah. Right. I think someone that's 25, it wouldn't work. Right. It just wouldn't work. And it wouldn't be recommended. Right. I wouldn't recommend it at all. But you'd have to have a, a grounding of life experience where when 100 people come out and quote tweet you and say, you got to unfollow this guy. This guy's a despicable asshole. He has no place in this business. 20 years ago, that would have been a real emotional dagger. But now, I can just look at it and laugh. Here's a question. Is it looking at it and laughing or is it when you tweeted what you tweeted? And by the way, let's just say, so someone asked you on Twitter, pretty standard, you know, like, what, what do you think of this situation? And here's, here's what you said. <laughs> the pod father referring to yourself in the third person, by the way, great start. The Podfather. It's not even like referring to yourself in the third person. It's like referring to the, the persona. Anyway, the Podfather is a fantasy content colossus, producing more, producing more content before 8 a.m. than most analysts do in a day. But you want me to drop everything to talk to, and then you, you put the person's name. Oh, I remember Dan Corrado. Because Dan Corrado is a very special person entitled to on-demand fantasy advice. Do I have that right, Dan? Now, the way you are laughing right now, I know that you had to be laughing like that as you were typing. I was loving it. When I thought of Colossus, it, see, when I, right. when I craft that tweet, I have everything but the word Colossus, and the tweet is unfinished for about five minutes. Until the word strikes me, oh, that's the word I needed. Okay, Colossus. okay, so what? So and then so I hit send. As soon is, as I as soon as I find Colossus, boom, sent. Okay, so this is this isn't something that you just fired off. This was crafted. Oh, were you, yes. You well, actually, it was. It, it could have been one I just fired off. I, tweets very similar to that are just fired off. But I knew I was onto something. But I couldn't quite find the word, so that took me about five minutes to get it right. So some, it, it ended up getting workshopped for about five minutes as opposed to others that are just fired off. Okay, so the, the big question is, as you are crafting this, as you are indulging yourself and humoring yourself in writing this, are you thinking, hell yeah, this is going to create a lot of negative engagement? No, or, no. or it was simply for my own enjoyment. Right. So it's not as if you are setting the world on like intentionally setting the no world on fire so that That's you can the thing enjoy with virality. You it. never know. The guy, the ocean spray guy had no idea that him singing Fleetwood Mac while drinking ocean right. spray on his skateboard was going to go viral. He had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea what the reaction would be. I just thought it was funny and very similar to 50 other tweets I've sent quote tweeting okay. questions. Okay, so let me let me frame this just a little bit differently, but with the same idea. Maybe you don't know that it's this particular tweet, but you know that if you do this often enough, there's a chance that somehow 
this breaks out in a fairly negative way. No, 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 no not okay. even. Actually, it became it was a pleasant surprise because I have done it so often with only laughing, crying emojis in response because the tweet never broke out of concentric circles of <laughs> those that understood right the persona. So I've never it was a shock to me. I was like, wait, people don't get this. I've done this for years. Wait, wait, there are people that don't get it. I think you, you've kind of answered the original question, which was, it's not that you do this with the intention of watching the world burn. It's that you do it and you're fine with accepting the negative consequences if they actually happen. Right. Because I don't right. take Twitter seriously. Twitter is virtual reality. So when you see the burning, I don't see it as real. I see it as the effect of a video game on a character. And maybe he dies, but I don't die in real life. I just died in the video game. Maybe I lose a bunch of followers and I gain very little value out of it. That's essentially like dying in the video game. Okay, so the question now for me is, what do you think distinguished this tweet from all of the other tweets? Do you think that it was maybe just time that like now you are uh, more established in the industry? So there are more people who follow you to react to this, do you think it had to do with some of the the character of this particular tweet? Like, I, I will say, this is a high-quality tweet in terms of, like, the, the way that it's written. Like, this is the type of... If I had to think about a tweet to get people to hate me, I don't know if I could come up with a better tweet than this one. So, like, what do you think it is about this tweet versus some of the others that really engendered this response? I think it was a confluence of factors that it was the self-aggrandizing, speaking of yourself in the third person, belittling an innocuous question, checked all those boxes. So maybe in a similar tweet previously, I didn't refer to myself in the third person, or I wasn't as cruel, or the question had an air of condescension that I was simply boomeranging back. <laughs> right at the tweeter I, yeah this had none of that this was pure unadulterated ego and cruelty laid bare and then it was retweeted by an individual with the complete opposite sensibility someone with an audience that i believe had greater than ten thousand followers with the specific brand identity that he is the most friendly fantasy analyst and will answer any and all questions ever posed to him. He was the first to object. Yeah. So then the tweet was sent to this whole new audience set that was unfamiliar with the persona and had a sensibility that would be particularly sensitive to this message in a negative way. We had a forest fire set by the tweet and then this Initial retweet with outrage was the, the Santa Ana winds that were <laughs> blowing yeah. the fire into areas that it had never been before, just burning everything. So it it went from a, a simple forest fire to a wildfire. Yeah. So, yeah, the use of the third person there, uh, that, that certainly was part of it. The fact, uh, fantasy content colossus, that's just something that that phrase, uh, I think, would sort of annoy people. And then talking about... <laughs> How much you do before everyone else wakes up. 
Oh, yeah. And then I think this is the part about it, that you produce more content before 8 a.m. than most analysts do in a day. So I think that actually is really what did it. Because as much as people would want to say that they're stepping up to defend Dan Corrado, you're just a random guy asking a question, you were really hitting two birds with one stone. Oh, yeah. Right? You weren't going just at Corrado, right? The shot that you took was, I'm better than everyone else in the industry with all of the volume I can put out there. And I think that is why it actually got so much traction. And it's not as if an analyst would come back at you and being like, hey, bro, I do just as much as you do. You're not better than me. No one they, they, said they, that. Can't, they can't do that. No one can do that because then they'll look like a dick. But what they can do is come at you and say, hey, man, you shouldn't be a dick on social media, right? And I think that is honestly, like that more than anything else. This is probably the only tweet where you were making fun of someone asking you a question where you also bothered to take a shot at everyone else in the industry. That is why this tweet caught fire, not because you were actually going off on someone who just randomly bothered to ask you a question. I love it. I love that tweet so much. Thank you for taking me down memory lane and reminding me why that tweet was so great. But I, I do believe that it was that retweet by an individual with the opposite sensibility that opened me up to a new audience, that fueled the outrage, that created all these new concentric circles around the tweet and generated all that engagement and some unfollows. Now take another tweet that was just good. Over the weekend, I wrote, rest now, you prince of maps, king of outstanding votes, and posted a picture of John King. And like the tweet we talked about earlier, there was an homage to the Marines that they get more done before 6 a.m. than most people do in a full day. This John King tweet was an homage to the Cider House Rules. Good night, you princes of Maine, kings of New England. Do you remember that movie? Uh, No, sorry. So I added Michael Caine. I said, shout out Michael Caine on the tweet. Now, if Michael Caine had retweeted that, I think that was what would have made it go viral. On my own, I could get us like 1,500 likes and 200 retweets just with a good, solid, well-timed, well-written tweet. But it's the retweet by the right individual at the right time that can send it viral. Had Michael Caine retweeted that, who knows where it would have gone. I mean, you got great interaction on that tweet anyway. If Kane had retweeted, it would have really gone off. But, you know, yeah, that was that was a great tweet. More more tweets like that. But less tweets. I do fashion, all kinds of tweets, people. man. I have the full spectrum. That's the beauty. You never know what you're going to get. That's an homage to Forrest Gump. Life is like a box of chocolates, Matthew Friedman. You never know what you're going to get. Down here in Greenbow, Alabama, we eat shrimp on sandwiches, we eat shrimp on salads, shrimp kebabs, shrimp scampi. I wasn't sure if at any point I should step in. I wanted to give you room really to explore the bit you were, you were doing there. Yeah, I should say, you took it much further than I, I thought that you would. I can take things far. And we do need to talk football. Although I think that this was fascinating, the deep dive into the social media strategy of Matthew Friedman and Matthew Kelly is 
undoubtedly going to be eye-opening to this audience. There's no doubt about it. So I appreciate you taking us down this road. This and there's was nothing I like content, more than I just reading say. my tweets on air. Yeah, Feels this great. was good. This was good. I think this was, uh, at a minimum, it was self-serving, but uh, I think it was also you know, potentially useful. And the final takeaway is you can never know what's going to go viral. You, ne- you never know. You can't predict it. You can just put out good content. What I can promise you, however, is that AMAs never go viral. That's accurate. Yes. So that is I, the uh, one I'm sure trade-off that. that you're making Yes, with your AMAs. is During that 30-minute period of time, you're unable to go viral. Yes, that is accurate. So you're reducing your upside. But I would argue raising your floor on social yes. media. Yeah. With that, what is your big takeaway from the NFL this season? I, I've learned nothing. I'll just I'll say that. I've taken away nothing. Uh, and a part it's because, uh, you know, uh, in terms of on-field performance, we're just eight or nine weeks into it and it's such a random year anyway, but I would say like a small lesson, uh, is that, uh, and it's not like we didn't know this before, but, uh, Hey, uh, the chiefs are really good. Uh, and people are used to how great they are, but you know, like people are just kind of ignoring it. Like they've gotten caught up in Russell Wilson, uh, in Aaron Rodgers, you know, uh, finding the fountain of youth, you know, people are just kind of looking for all of these other things to focus on when the story should be like, Hey, everyone, the chiefs are still really good. Like this is the team that you should be backing to win the super bowl. Uh, people. Okay. Look at it this way. People were talking, we're talking about Russell Wilson, the first three weeks of the season and totally ignoring the fact that after three weeks, the chiefs were three and zero. they had just on the road beaten the Ravens by 14 points and Patrick Mahomes was still pacing uh, for uh, like an all-time great season, right? Patrick Mahomes through three weeks was still averaging just about 300 yards per game and three touchdowns passing per game. He's on a a per attempt basis doing pretty much what he did in his 2018 MVP season, but people were totally ignoring it and have ignored it for most of the season, even though he's been fantastic. And this is like nothing against Russell Wilson, who's been great. It's It's been fantastic to see him have the opportunity to do all that he's done. But the story for the season should still be that the Kansas City Chiefs are the best team in the league and no other team right now is particularly close. And their run-to-pass ratio in Week 9 is one of the reasons why. You look at a game that was competitive throughout within a single score the entire game. The Chiefs run the ball 12 times, including two Patrick Mahomes scrambles. 12 total rushes. Carolina, double that number. And that's the ball game. That's the ball game. The Chiefs have figured out that you don't need to run the ball to win games. And not only that, the more you run, the more you hurt your chances of winning. Now, they do have Patrick Mahomes, but you can imagine that many offensive coordinators, even those that would have a Patrick Mahomes, and we saw Mike McCarthy with Aaron Rodgers, when Aaron Rodgers was at the peak of his powers, still, still running a quote-unquote balanced offense. When Andy Reid has thrown out the idea of balance because he's realized sooner than almost any other coach that balance is stupid. And if you have a coordinator that has come to Jesus on the running game, that it doesn't help you win, it helps you lose. And he also has Patrick Mahomes. That team is unstoppable. Yeah. I mean, we have Mahomes with literally one interception on the year to 25 touchdowns. Right. Let's say, why would you run the ball? Why, why would you ever run the ball? And this idea that Andy Reid might come to Jesus and 
just stop running the ball ever. Did not occur to those drafting Clyde Edwards Hilaire in the first round. Is Clyde Edwards Hilaire a bust? No. He's a disappointment. Sure. Certainly a disappointment. But like what world is he a bust in which like we have a guy who's pacing. Now, granted, the, the pace has changed because of the addition of Le'Veon Bell. But a guy who is pacing for like 1,200, 1,300 yards from scrimmage and pacing for 50 receptions. Uh, and, you know, given the offense he's in, he will probably still score enough touchdowns. He's a 21-year-old rookie back. What what world do we live in in which a guy who has that would be considered a bust? He was a mid-first-round pick. And you are the father of Robust RB. When I talk about Robust RB, I talk about Matthew Friedman, the father of Robust RB. And Robust RB uh, was created as an anti-fragile strategy alternative to zero RB. They're both anti-fragile. They both address the fragility of the running back position in different ways. But given this trend that we're seeing, NFL teams just disregarding the run altogether, look at the Saints-Bucks game. The Buccaneers did not even give lip service to the running game. NFL teams five years ago would be running the ball even down double digits, always with these token runs to set up the play action. Now teams with analytics departments know you don't need to run the ball to use play action effectively. If this continues, this trend toward more passing, less running, the pass-run ratio rising at a rising rapidly around the NFL, does that make Robust RB completely untenable? And will we get to a place where, and, and will, will actually this help fuel, will this actually make zero RB a better strategy year over year over year? Was there an inflection point last year where robust RB was at its zenith, where the running back position was used enough and there were enough bell cow backs that were excellent in the passing game that they could be difference makers, but will that advantage go away if teams go to 70, 75% pass to run? Okay, so you you asked a lot there. First of all, I should say I'm I'm not the father of robust RB. Don't don't paint me with my brush with that brush. That's like a default uh for lots of people uh for years. But uh yes, it is harder and harder. Well, did you not coin the term for ro- at Rotoviz? I think honestly that was uh okay, so I I was the first at Rotoviz to be like, hey, let's do RB times five. Like I was in you know, I was the RB times five guy, but I think actually it was Anthony Amico at, at Rotoviz who maybe coined the phrase robust RB. I don't know who that is, but I'll, I'm just going to give it to you. I, I certainly was not the one who, who coined it, but anyway, um, but I, I was the, the first there who was like RB times four, RB times five. And it was possible to win with that strategy through last year, but the way pass to run ratios are trending, I don't know if that's tenable any longer. So, so two things, one, uh, actually probably three things. One with what you're saying with uh, teams skewing towards the pass, I think it is possible potentially to, to win with a RB heavy approach. If you are focusing on the guys who can really produce through the, the aerial attack. So that's the way you would have to go about it. But that is still, I think pretty hard to do because there aren't all that many guys who are really consistent in that way. The running backs you can predict will command a hundred targets. It's like three guys on the list. Right. Right. There exactly. There aren't all that many guys. Uh, another thing is that, uh, I mean, I did a thread before the season started where I mapped out how I was approaching drafts and, uh, it definitely wasn't robust RB. 
uh, this has been a particularly brutal year for the position. And uh, you could kind of see it coming in parts because, uh, and I would say not just this position, but, you know, because of the whole lack of uh, lack of the ability to train in the preseason, lack of the preseason in general, uh, no preseason games, just everything. You could see that there were going to be more injuries. And in a year in which there are injuries, you just know this is going to hit the running back position particularly hard. Uh, and so I was off of a lot of running backs. I said basically that in terms of the running back position, I was skipping everyone in the eight to 14 range. And we have seen this year how fragile that group really has been. So this year I really had much more of a zero RB approach and it certainly has, has paid off. Like I, I missed in that I was so heavy on cam Akers. that part sucks, but, uh, going in on James Connor, avoiding all of those guys who were in that RB eight to 14 range, that certainly has paid off. You think James Connor's paying off? Yeah. Based on where you drafted him, like he, he has survived like where you he just hasn't got, him. he just hasn't got hurt. Yes. That's, that's the, that's the, but whole, he was the number the one most injury prone running back heading into this season. He had the highest probability of getting hurt. He, I mean, and it happened in week one, week one sucked, but like since then he's been good. And uh, if you get 13 games out of James Conner based on where he was drafted, like that would be enough. And the, the point is he actually like when he was going as like an RB, like the RB 18, RB 20, 24, depending on when you were doing your drafts. Oh, no, he was going late second round and especially in best ball leagues on underdog. Yeah. in late August. But, you know, like before that, there was a lot of people drafting. Uh, and you still had the opportunity to get Connor at a discount. Oh, in the fourth round? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I remember those days. I have to go way back in the way back machine, turn the dials to May, fourth round. No, no, you could you could get James Connor in the middle of the third round in July. Hmm. You think you're getting third round value out of James Connor now? Yeah. Well, think about the third round. The entire third round has imploded. Wide receivers in the third round, Mike Evans, bust, Chris Godwin bust dj moore bust curtis samuel is now outscoring dj moore in fantasy points per game jonathan taylor bust it's been devastating the third yeah, round I mean, this, has been an absolute yeah, I mean, devastation is, yeah this is what i'm saying all of the, all of the running backs you had to take allen robinson well i mean let's be honest i didn't i didn't take allen robinson oh i did well yeah you're you're smart but i i wasn't i wasn't on allen robinson but to the point yeah robust rb is very hard to do and it would have been especially hard to do this year. Now, maybe the most devastating second round pick of all, George Kittle. Yeah. But if the tight end coin flipped the other way, you end up with Travis Kelsey, right? right? How much of a strategic yeah. advantage is Kelsey over any other player? Like if you could go back and reshuffle the deck in the second round, once Devontae Adams is off the board, wouldn't you go Kelsey? Doesn't he give you this immense advantage on every other team in your league yeah i mean the default way that i was drafting this year was avoiding in especially if you had a pick in the the second half of the first round avoiding running backs there and either going you know two wide receivers or tight end and wide receiver uh and you know i probably aired too much on the side of kittle but yeah i mean kelsey deserved kelsey. to be someone who was in the first round and he wasn't going there. So anytime you could get Kelsey in the second round, I mean, that was just straight profit, especially now that Kittle is gone. I mean, that's, that really boosts the value, uh, the strategic value that you pointed out that, uh, that Kelsey has like, and if you could go back in time, 
knowing that Kittle is done for the year. I mean, you would take Kelsey in the top five, especially, especially knowing all the running back carnage, you know, like if I told you Kittle is out and by the way, uh, Christian McCaffrey misses half of the year. Saquon is done for almost the entirety of the year. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott basically gets sidelined because his offense sucks. I mean, you would easily take Kelsey in the top five. I would take a number two overall. It would go Alvin Kamara, Travis Kelsey, because the immense advantage you have. Travis Kelsey, 17.9 fantasy points per game. The next tight end on the list that's played more than three games is yeah. Robert Tanyan. <laughs> that's not even a joke. It's that's so true. bad. It's the next guy, if you throw Kittle out, because he hasn't even played in 50% of the available games, it's Robert Tanyan. That's the kind of strategic advantage. That's almost a touchdown of fantasy points that you're getting over the field if you have Kelsey over any other tight end. That's a touchdown a week. Yeah. It's crazy. It's just crazy. I love it. It's, it's, it's like Rob Gronkowski 10 years ago. If you had Rob Gronkowski 10 years ago, this was the type of advantage you had on the field. Duke Johnson. You love him. I love him. Those that understand advanced metrics love him. For the first five years of his career, he was the most efficient running back in the NFL. Is he the ultimate free square for DFS, for seasonal leagues, those that want to win Week 10? If David Johnson is inactive, autoplay Duke Johnson? God, I hope so. I mean, I remember in the offseason, we talked about, like, this was this was the year that all Duke Johnson had standing in his way was David Johnson. Uh, and at some point, you know, David Johnson, either through injury or inefficiency, uh, would be sidelined and we would have the opportunity for Duke Johnson. And so he has the opportunity. Uh, yeah. If you have Duke Johnson, this is the week you are putting him in your starting lineup. I, I hope that we don't see what we saw out of Chase Edmonds last week, just in terms of production. But if in terms of the opportunities that Edmonds had, like if we see something like that, man, it, it could be, you know, like a 30 point performance for Duke Johnson. Oh, it's stop bemoaning the Chase Edmonds week nine performance. It was a great process play. The guy had 25 carries. Do you realize what kind of outlier 25 carries is in today's NFL for yeah. all of you out there bemoaning the Chase Edmonds call by the pod father and many other fantasy analysts you need to detangle process from results and realize that you roll those dice over and over and over if we play that hand over and over and over again Chase Edmonds is more often than not an RB1 in week 9 shut up well no I mean I, I agree no no, no it's like not you yeah. This is a nameless, yeah, yeah, yeah. faceless people on social media and everywhere else bemoaning the Chase Edmonds call. Oh, he was fake chalk. Fuck you. He was not fake chalk. The guy was a lock button play in week nine. And sometimes the lock button just jams a little bit. And that's what happens. Okay. 25 carries for Christ's sake. Let me, let me go a step further here. Chase Edmonds, you have to go back to the well. I mean, assuming Kenyon Drake is out, you absolutely have to play Chase Edmonds again oh, yeah. this week. Home game. Because because you saw the usage that he had last week. And by the way, if anyone had told you last week that Edmonds gets, you know, like almost 100% of, of the backfield work, uh, I mean, you would cream yourself. Yeah, right. I did. It's, it's a situation where you go back to Chase Edmonds, given that he's at home, big favorite, high total, great matchup, against a Bills defense 
that is one of the worst units in the league against the run. Fantastic spot for Chase Edmonds this week. And I, I think it's a similarly great spot for Duke Johnson. It's just that Duke Johnson has a lower salary on DraftKings. Duke Johnson is only 5K, but Chase Edmonds isn't that expensive either. He's only 6.3K. So his salary only went up 500 on DraftKings, or did it go down? His salary actually went down on DraftKings 500. Unreal. His salary actually went down. You might think, oh, well, the uh, DraftKings algorithm is super sophisticated. They understand that opportunity matters most for running backs. No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The DraftKings pricing algorithm is better than FanDuel's, but it's still overrated, clearly, based on what you're seeing. Chase Edmonds faces Buffalo at home, 6.3K. So we could thank the performance, the dud from week nine for this discount they're able to enjoy and you have to just go back to the well say no to fantasy ptsd you have to say no to fantasy ptsd especially in dfs and go back and play chase edmonds play duke johnson they're both cash game plays this week can you believe 25 percent of fantasy gamers dropped mike davis last week uh i mean i can believe it because there are a lot of people who engage in suboptimal behavior all the time, but it was clearly a mistake. Uh, <laughs> Is and, it the and way be... to go at this point in the season to just hoard running backs on your bench? Isn't this the yeah, absolutely. clear tactic to take in fantasy football seasonal leagues? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, it would be the smart thing to do anyway, but especially this season and especially with Mike Davis when we've seen what he's capable of and when you have Christian McCaffrey coming back uh, in his first game, like, Hey, maybe they're rushing him back. Maybe he's not especially healthy. Keep the guy who could be a league winner. Uh, if things don't work out with CMC and I would be saying this, even if McCaffrey were healthy, you should still be holding on to Mike Davis. Even if you never get any actual use from him, the potential that he has is nearly unrivaled. So massive mistake for everyone to drop him. Who would you consider droppable that would surprise people? I don't know. I don't have I don't have a good read. Right, I'm gonna go back on, and delete that on, question. Don't say anything. Don't say. I don't. I didn't even want to okay. ask that question. Okay. I'm, I have such great instincts. I was not going to ask that question, but then you mentioned that you prepared, and I didn't want to uh, disappoint you by not asking a question you had prepared for. But then I went ahead and asked the question, and it turns out that was one of the questions you hadn't prepared for. Well, I, I prepared for it. My answer was something like maybe T.Y. Hilton. Okay, never, like, mind. never mind. Of like, course, T.Y. Hilton. It's not good. Never, never mind. That's going. This is going in the outtakes. Okay. Uh, we have a new. I have. I have a new producer. I have a new Patrick. Patrick, this is going in the outtakes. I'm just going to say it out loud, Patrick. If this finds its way in the show, I'm going to fire you. I'm stashing Devonte Booker. It's crazy. It's sad, but he outproduced Josh Jacobs in the running game last week. Are you worried about Josh Jacobs? Uh, not really. I mean, he's okay. Here's the thing. People knew what Josh Jacobs was when they drafted him, right? They knew that he would be a game script dependent producer. Uh, and so if, if you're not pleased with what you're getting, you have only yourself to blame, but here's the thing, compare him to all of the other running backs who went in his draft range. Those guys are all dead. Like relative to them, Josh Jacobs looks great. In eight Joe games, Mixon, dead. Nick right. Chubb, dead. Yeah. And in eight games, he has 713 yards and six touchdowns. And, and people are going to complain about that. Like that would be ridiculous. Again, Don't complain. you Don't knew complain. what you were getting and his production has been uneven, but you knew that's how it would be if he stayed healthy. At least he has stayed healthy. Uh, and for the season, 
he's giving you a good chance of going over 1,200 yards and having double-digit touchdowns. That's a really good season in any year, but especially in 2020. Who you got, Jordan Wilkins or Jonathan Taylor? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, I would say Jonathan Taylor. I would say? I mean, I have to stick with that. The fact that they invested the draft capital in him, that he is talented. Like, maybe he's not talented. Maybe he just actually is not a good running back. But I think that at some point, he has to find his way, given the athleticism he has. And he's, he's much better as a receiver than anyone would have thought. Like if there were one thing uh, to really hold against him when he entered the league, it would have been his inability as a receiver. The fact that he has busted so hard while being much better as a receiver than anyone thought he would be, like I never would have anticipated that. So the fact that he actually is probably good enough in the receiving game makes me think that he can get it back, right? Like, do I want to bet on Jordan Wilkins? No, like I, I would, I would bet on Wilkins to fail. Agree. 100%. He's not Trent Richardson. You're an Alabama fan. He's not Trent Richardson, right? No. Uh, if if for no other reason than the fact that, uh, Richardson wasn't nearly as athletic as, uh, as we've seen out of, out of this guy, you can't call Jonathan Taylor a system running back. That was an indictment. You could lob at Trent Richardson, Jarek McKinnon was a quarterback in college and it seems he's not dead yet. So I think it's happening. I think he's happening. Is he happening? Uh, no. I mean, short term. No, sure. For this, for this one week, maybe long term. No, long term. I'm not buying it. Like Shanahan's backfield is just too uncertain. You still have Jamichael hasty there. At some point, one of these other running backs is going to come back, uh, and you know, relegate Jerick McKinnon to his number two role or maybe even number three role by that point. So McKinnon, short-term, this week, sure. But long-term, no. And by long-term, I mean even like three weeks from now. I like him against New Orleans. I do like him against New Orleans. New Orleans does not allow a lot of fantasy points to opposing running backs, but his activity in the passing game, we're assuming, we're assuming based on what we saw last week from New Orleans, that they will get out to a lead. Yeah then you can expect Jarek McKinnon to command at least five targets. And given his salary on DraftKings, 5.6K, he's a guy you're going to want to play in tournaments. Who's the most radioactive guy right now in all of fantasy football? The guy that you want to sell, not only in seasonal leagues, dynasty, you're running and hiding. I don't have a good answer to this one. I mean, it might be Jonathan Taylor. It Like, it, it might be Jonathan Taylor, but I think that's counter... Um, I think that's a counter indicator. Like I, I get so many questions. Here's where this is coming from. I get so many questions in the AMAs about what the hell do I do with Jonathan Taylor? And, uh, it's, you can't drop him. Um, you can't trade him because no one wants to trade anything for him. You, you can't start him because he, in any given week can destroy your lineup. The only thing you can do is hold him. But like, given everything that I said, it feels like the time to buy him, you know? And I know like, I'm not answering the question that you asked, but like, he feels like he is so radioactive that now is the time to invest. I traded Chris Godwin recently in Dynasty. Good move? I don't think so. Antonio Brown arriving, crowding out targets, subverting that Chris Godwin route tree. There's no way that anyone's going to usurp Mike Evans on the outside. So doesn't the law, the conservation of targets necessarily mean that Chris Godwin will continue to underwhelm? And then we don't know what he's going to be next year. We don't know who his quarterback's going to be. A lot of uncertainty with Chris Godwin, but he still has a lot of brand equity 
in youth, 24 years old, I was able to get Cam Akers for him. Now, do you agree with the trade? Uh, no. I would I would rather have Godwin. I would rather have Godwin over Cam Akers. Wow. And here's here's You're a big Even, Cam Akers fan. I'm shocked I, I know, to hear I this. Know. I know. Uh, maybe it's just sort of capitulation on Acres, but it's e- even without thinking of Acres, I, I think there's too much of a bull case to be made on Godwin, and a lot of it has to do. Okay, so a couple things. One, if you were thinking just in terms of the market of when is a good time to divest out of this player, then I think you probably made a good move. Um, but not not all dynasty leagues actually have really fluid or like liquid trade markets. And so in that case, uh, I think you would be selling uh, into a situation of regret where a couple of years from now, you're looking at a guy who is still awesome, still relatively young, and I would say probably still able to put up production regardless of who his quarterback is. And you would think, I got Cam Akers, (laughs) who's like the number three running back on uh, a team that uh, doesn't run the ball that much anymore, right? Like, but even just outside of Acres, Godwin is so good on his own that in the inherent value, not the market value, but the inherent value he has, I wouldn't really want to trade him because I still think long term he's worth more than you're able to get for him on the open market right now. I'm in win now mode and I was able to get Acres and Mike Williams. And my argument was I'll get the same production from Mike Williams this year that I would have got from Chris Godwin. And Mike Williams was just as undervalued at that point two weeks ago as Chris Godwin. Okay, adding Mike Williams into it is is more intriguing because I do think he's uh, been undervalued for years at this point. But he's so inconsistent that it, it's kind of hard to know. Um, but Chris Godwin's it, not going to be consistent. Yeah. I don't know when Chris Godwin will be a consistent producer again. I can't tell you with any kind of certainty. And that scared me to a place where I thought, hmm, I can put him on the market. I can see if I can get a Dobbins or a Swift or an Acres, and it happened. I don't know, man. I mean, Godwin has six targets in every game this year. Like, he has only really one bad game, and that was Monday Night Football. Um, I I would still want to be invested in Chris Godwin. Would you try to pursue Austin Eckler in trade right now? Yeah, I like that idea. Uh, and maybe yeah, he's my favorite trade candidate right now. Just go get Austin Eckler. Yeah, maybe it doesn't work out for this year. Um, but in Dynasty, certainly. And I would say even this year, I still like the idea of oh, yeah. going out and getting Eckler because you can probably get him pretty cheaply at this point. And when he returns, I mean, he has top five upside. Like we we know that he's one of those running backs who actually has top top five upside, especially now that the uh, the guys who used to be in the top five, like half of them are gone uh, and so the top five doesn't even mean what it used to. Right. So yeah, you you could get Eckler for much less uh, than you would have had to pay at the beginning of the season. And I think he still has that upside. He's one of those rare running backs that we talked about, one of five in the league that we know when healthy can command 100 targets. Yeah. Alvin Kamara being the best at commanding the targets, but did you notice last week, season low fantasy points, the same week that Michael Thomas played? What's the bigger throttle on Alvin Kamara last week? Was it the Bucks defense or was it the return of Michael Thomas? Uh, I think it was a combination of the defense and then also the game flow to where at a certain point, it just it didn't make sense for uh, Kamara to be out there uh, 
getting a lot of action. Um, but you know, obviously longer term, the, the return of Michael Thomas will drop Kamara down from like that target share of like 30% that he was seeing to something, you know, like more reasonable, but still amazing, like 24% or 22%, something like that, uh, which, you know, will, will drop Kamara down and make it, make it more competitive in terms of who is the number one overall running back. Uh, is it McCaffrey when he's healthy? Is it, uh, Dalvin cook? Uh, before, if you had Kamara getting the outrageous target share, it was clearly Kamara. Now it's a conversation. It is a conversation. And he's one of those reverse game script dependent running backs. He's a satellite back plus. So like Naheem Hines, like JD McKissick, you want the team to be in a competitive game situation. You don't want there to be a blowout and potential clock killing situation and, and then clock milking mode where they're giving it to Latavius Murray. I have nothing to add to that. DeAndre Swift, what's his ceiling? Uh, I mean, his ceiling, he, he's been really good. His ceiling is mid-range RB1 if they use him even just a little bit more because of his pass catching ability. He's better, I think, as a runner than people maybe expected he would be. But he's just so dynamic all the way around. Um, his floor, obviously, is uh, that he's with a Detroit coaching staff that's stupid and they choose not to use him <laughs> as much as they should. But his, his ceiling is uh, is fantastic. What's Leonard Fournette's ceiling? Uh, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. His ceiling is uh, putting Rojo on the sideline and getting 20 carries per game and six uh, six targets per game, Those which six is targets a are delightful, which is a, a really freaking high ceiling. Like he, he could be top five. That's his ceiling. He could be right there with Aaron Jones. He could be playing the LeGarrette blunt role. Plus like a, a diminished version of the James white role. Like that's his ceiling. Are you worried about positive game script, depressing Aaron Jones output this week at home against Jacksonville? Or is it just a wheels up situation autoplay, lock button, everything. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried, actually, uh, because you still have Jamal Williams, who uh, will steal some of that work. Uh, yeah, it's setting up to be a Jamal Williams game. Yeah, it's it's hard to know uh, which one of those guys is really going to go off, or is it split? Uh, and so, although you can certainly see how Jones has number one overall upside, if he gets all of that usage, right, he could just dominate the slate. You just you don't know for sure if it's going to him. Whereas someone like Chase Edmonds, you know the workload is going to him uh, un unless Kyler Murray just steals all of the, all of the rushing touchdowns, which no. could happen. It could. But, I... but it's a it's a different situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it could happen where the Packers are so dominant that Aaron Jones just doesn't produce. What's Antonio Gibson's ceiling? Uh, I mean, league winner uh, in the second half of the season. I, I mean, you you really you really called it. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't say that I mocked you, um, but, you know, you said David Johnson, uh, young David Johnson, and that really is what he's shown. He just needs to be used more specifically as a receiver. But in the final six weeks of the season, he really could be someone who comes out of nowhere. Yeah, he's not Kalen Balaj. Okay, I know that that was the accus that was that was the great criticism. That was that was the most stinging criticism. Oh, he's Kalen Balaj. He's not Kalen Balaj. Ridiculous. Kalen Balaj is awful, right? If you pick up Kalen Balaj on the waiver wire this week, you're an idiot, right? Uh, no, but 
I mean, you're, you're not an idiot because we don't know what's happening with Justin Jackson or uh, Troy Maine Pope. Uh, it seems like they really don't want to give the ball to Joshua Kelly any more than they have to. Um, so I wouldn't say like you're an idiot. I would say adjust your expectations. Don't expect him to do every week what he just did, but he should certainly be rostered. What? Yeah. Bellagio? Kalen Bellash? <laughs> yeah, he needs to be you're, rostered. You're picking him up? I'm not saying I'm picking him up, but he, someone should pick him up. He's the ultimate roster clog trap. I mean, someone's got to get carries. It might be him this week. Our analysis of Kalen Balaj perfectly illustrates the differences in our personality. We talked about our differences in approaching Twitter. How we talk about Kalen Balaj perfectly illustrates those differences. Look, I'm not saying that I want him. No, no, I'm that, saying I'm or, an or, asshole calling people idiots for picking up Kalen Balaj, and you're the one with all the nuance. Well, no, okay, I'm just, I'm saying he should be rostered if you find out that Justin Jackson isn't starting, then he probably has some flex value, especially in a bye week. But it's not like I'm saying go, go out, out and blow, blow your wad and get him and uh, then lock him into your lineups. Don't I'm not say that. If you want to put a dollar on him, that's fine. Let someone else overbid and overspend on Kalen Balaj. That's the advice. What's your priority QB wide receiver stack for DFS this week? I do not have one. Next question. I thought you would say Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, and then we're going to have that conversation about, oh, well, what if they're up 20? And, and, and I, I wanted you to say Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, and then we could have that discussion of, well... <laughs> When you're picking the best quarterback wide receiver stack, you don't necessarily want to pick the players that are facing the weakest defense. You want to face the players that are facing the weakest defense with the best corresponding offense, with the highest likelihood of a shootout. It's great they're facing Jacksonville. It's unfortunate they're facing Luton. That's the problem. The reason why you don't put Rodgers Adams as a high priority QB wide receiver stack this week is Luton. That's the reason not to. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly fair. I would say if you're thinking about priority quarterbacks, uh, the Buffalo Arizona game really stands out. And then I think you try to get away from what will be certainly chalky by targeting some of the lower owned players. But uh, I think that will still be hard to do, which is why I still wouldn't really even view that as like the priority quarterback wide receiver stack. What about Tua Tungavailoa? He's coming off seven rush attempts. One where he had a spin move. He put a guy in the spin cycle. It was amazing. 35 rushing yards. That's what I'm focused on in a game that will likely shoot out because all these Chargers games shoot out and come down to the wire. What about stacking Tua and Devontae Parker. You have to love that at value. I I don't I don't hate that and it will probably work out, but the thing is, uh I am imagining that based on what we saw last week, uh Casey Hayward will probably be used in shadow coverage now that the Chargers uh have traded away Desmond King, they don't have Chris Harris, they don't have Derwin James. They're really just trying to cover up the weakness of their secondary. And so last week they used Hayward in shadow coverage for just the second time this season, they might do that again. Uh, and so I think he will be on Parker for most of the game, oh, no. which will kind of diminish a little bit of the, uh, the upside. I think that Parker would have, but remember that was the argument not to play Terry McLaurin last week. Oh, he's going to face Bradbury all game. 
some wide receivers are able to take their play to the next level, rise above whatever cornerback is shadowing them. The difference is Terry McLaurin simply a better player than Devontae Parker. Preston Williams suffered a foot injury. He's day-to-day, and whenever they come out and say the guy's day-to-day, that almost always means he's going to miss the next game. The next wide receiver on the depth chart in Miami is named Jakeem Grant. This is a player you've been talking about for years. Now is your moment, man. You can play Grant. Yeah, uh, talk talk dirty to me. I mean, this is uh, a smash situation. Absolutely. You have Parker shadowed by Hayward. Yeah, it's a great situation. And it's not just that you have Parker shadowed by Hayward. Regardless of where Hayward would be playing, he would not be lining up against Grant because Grant plays most of his snaps in the slot where Desmond King no longer is. And Chris, Hay- uh, Chris Harris is also gone. So he's going against... Uh, Tavon Campbell, right. Who I think is like a a special teamer. Uh, and and like granted, like Grant isn't, uh, I mean, he's not like a dominant wide receiver or anything, but he's got a lot of talent. Uh, and I think he makes for a really intriguing stack actually with the Miami defense, uh, which has come a long way in the past year, but because Grant always has the ability to, uh, turn a, a kick or a punt into a touchdown, and then now he's also being used uh, as an actual wide receiver. Uh, I think there's a little bit of hidden upside with him. So and especially given that that wide receiver cornerback matchup he has. Uh, yeah, he's he's someone I'm really intrigued by. This is it. I mean, this is it. If not Parker, it's going to be Grant. It's going to be Mike Gusecki. There's going to be points scored. And we're not going to have Tua as the high priority quarterback but watch for some Tua based primarily on his activity as a runner that's what raises the ceiling for tournaments and at that price point given the game situation that you're probably going to see Miami Los Angeles it's worth a dabble it's it's absolutely worth a dabble I mentioned Terry McLaurin how good is Terry McLaurin holy shit he's amazing um I want Terry McLaurin everywhere I can get him uh, regardless of the the format, uh, you know, redraft, dynasty, whatever. Top 10 dynasty receiver. Top five. Whoa, I mean, whoa. Do, doesn't he feel um, very DeAndre Hopkins-esque in terms of the way that he can transcend bad quarterbacks? Like, oh, think of yeah. all of the guys who have thrown him the ball over the past year and a half. It's, it's a cavalcade of trash. And he is still... <laughs> He has still been able to produce and and like, I think Hopkins is the only receiver I can think of at least like in recent memory, who's been able to produce at a a top tier level like that, almost regardless of who is throwing him the ball. Uh, And the fact that he's able to do that with these guys throwing to him makes me think that like, he could really be something special whenever he gets an actual quarterback. And like that, that will happen at some point just based on how poorly this team is played. The three receivers to accrue the most value this year in Dynasty are CeeDee Lamb, DK Metcalf, and Terry McLaurin. In that wide receiver one slot in Dynasty, who you got? Is it Devontae Adams with the ultra-high weekly output, but yet past the age apex? So league winner this year, but has a time clock started? Or is it DK Metcalf, where you're not going to get the consistent production this year, But over the lifetime, he's just more valuable. Even in a win-now team, you'd rather have DK Metcalf. 
who you got? Yeah, I mean, the the question has the answer in it. I mean, it, it's got to be Metcalf, I think. I, I want to contextualize it, and it's a great question. Um, if I knew Rodgers were going to stay as Adams' quarterback, and if I were focused most on the next one to three years, I would go with Adams. But Rodgers might leave, and I need to keep in mind uh, the upside of what comes after that three-year window. So I, I go with Metcalf because I think he will have Wilson for a long time. Uh, after this three-year window, uh, I expect him to be more productive, to to have a longer tail because he, obviously he's so much younger. And then also, there is a good enough chance within the next one to three years that he is still close enough in production to Adams. And he, I mean, honestly, there's a non-zero chance he's actually more productive than Adams next year. It's possible. It's possible. But but Adams is scoring a full touchdown more this year than DK Metcalf. And we primarily look at three seasons of production counting this season when we're valuing players for our Dynasty rankings, the Dynasty Dominator app fueled by our lifetime value formula. And the computer that generates that formula prefers Devontae Adams based on the differential between what Adams produces over the replacement level wide receiver for this year, 2021 in 2022, which is going to be his age 29 season. But because DK Metcalf is exactly five years younger, he's right there with Adams. Like yeah. If Metcalf were just a few years older, it would be a blowout. It wouldn't be close. But because right. Metcalf is producing more than 20 fantasy points a game at 23 years old, that puts him right there with Adams. And it's why it's a fascinating dichotomy. And here's the thing. The, the youth factors into this in two ways. One, he's going to last longer just in terms of like the life of the asset. But then two, because he's so young, he actually still might get better as a football player. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And he's going to have his quarterback, Russell Wilson for the foreseeable future, where there's more uncertainty around Devonte Adams quarterback. Now our lifetime value system does have an uncertainty quotient and we need to potentially turn the dial up on the uncertainty around Devontae Adams because we're not sure how long Aaron Rodgers will be in Green Bay. So that's a note that we're going to file away. Kyler Murray versus Lamar Jackson in Dynasty. Is it clear now that because Kyler Murray is the number eight overall rusher in the NFL that he has surpassed Lamar Jackson and by a wide margin in dynasty? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I would say a wide margin, but I would say certainly surpassed him. Um, because even though he's not the, the yardage producer on the ground that Lamar Jackson is, he's certainly compensating for that by getting those touchdowns. And he's good enough as a, a yardage producer to where you can't really say Lamar has a massive edge over Kyler as a runner. He he has a slight edge, but the edge that Murray has as a passer over Jackson, that is huge. Like he, he is already in his second year, a better passer than Lamar Jackson probably ever will be in his career. Like you can't say that for sure, but it, it's probable. And so, yes, I would say the clear edge goes in this instance to uh to kyler who's just been fantastic in this second season yeah and like dk metcalf he has more room to grow yeah if you were starting a franchise today do you want Tua tungo veloa as an alabama fan (laughs) do you want joe burrow as a fan of cigars or (laughs) justin herbert a fan of swashbuckling surfers okay uh i i have two answers one is the cheating answer 
Uh, and that is, uh, I would trade down and take whichever one is third. The, the real answer, uh, is if I had to choose one, uh, I would go with Herbert. Um, because, and I should say, uh, it, it feels really weird to have that, not weird to have this conversation, but just, we don't know yet what the future holds for these guys. We've seen them for, you know, like two to eight games. So anyway, uh, we don't know yet, but what we've seen in the early going is that Herbert immediately stepped in, uh, in a really weird circumstance in his first game where like, it wasn't like, Hey, you're the starter. And now you have a week to prepare. It was like, uh, Hey, you're starting in five minutes. And I mean, going, <laughs> going against the world champions, he had his team in position to win that game. And, and since then he's been fantastic in, in a situation with suboptimal coaching, he has kept his team in, in every game where they have had a, a chance to win. And he's done it uh, by being aggressive. And he's a much better runner than we saw out of him in college. And even though he's, you know, like a big guy, he still has athleticism. And so given oh. his ability to run, given the arm that he has, uh, given the weapons around him, uh, I think I, w- I want to go with Herbert. Would you take Herbert over Josh Allen? As in terms of fantasy or in terms of reality? If you're starting a franchise, if you're a general manager. Yeah, I, I take Herbert over Allen. That's right, because Herbert has similar tools, but he's been much more efficient at a younger age than Josh Allen was. The big question around Justin Herbert was, would he be Blaine Gabbert? Would he be poised <laughs> yeah. in the face of pressure? Or would he drop his eyes and opt to scramble? Would he be able to get past his first and second read in the face of pressure? And that he's answered that question in the affirmative, that yes, he's definitively able to process information and stay poised and throw off platform in the face of pressure. Now we can just bet on all those tools. And between Burrow and Tua and Herbert, he had by far and away the best tools. He just didn't have the college production, and he had these questions about his ability as a pocket passer in the NFL. That those have been answered now, it's clear. The answer is Herbert, and when you project forward, when you give him a couple more years in the NFL of seasoning, you have to think he's going to be better than Josh Allen, although Josh Allen has been better than anyone could have ever imagined based on how inefficient he was at Wyoming and in his first two seasons in the league. Is he the most surprising player in the NFL for you? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think he's the most surprising player. Um, I mean, I he's I done a great job him. against really bad defenses, Matt. <laughs> I mean, I bet on him to win MVP at 50 to one. You know? oh! so, I mean, you know, not that he's going to win. No, he's um, Patrick but, Mahomes or Russell Wilson, but yeah, but, um, good process. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there is value there. Uh, he's, I'm impressed by how he has progressed. And I'm also impressed by, even though I think the team shouldn't have drafted him, uh, I'm impressed by what they've done since they drafted by putting weapons around him uh, and helping him progress. So uh, I think he's done a remarkable job given where he was when he was entering the league. It's a surprise that he's been as good as this as a passer, not a surprise that he's been, you know, a top five fantasy producer, because that's pretty much kind of always what he was. Uh, since the second half of his rookie year. Buffalo, the MVFO, the most valuable front office. Congratulations, Buffalo Bills. Great front office. Building around a flawed player. Drew Locke, also flawed. Does he remind you of a young Josh Allen? No. No. Next question. 
Okay. No, no, he doesn't have the running ability. I mean, Josh Allen, his rookie season was uh, just taking off, you know, like able to get chunk yards, uh, keeping the ball at the goal line, getting a lot of touchdowns. And he still did that a lot in his second season. We just don't see that at all from uh, from Drew Locke. And we also He's, need Drew Locke to play well against a quality defense. Once he yeah. does that, then we can start to have a bigger conversation about his future in the NFL. He is sustaining Jerry Judy. Jerry yeah. Judy, big time breakout week in week nine. Can he sustain this? Can he keep going? Yeah, I think so. I, I know that earlier uh, in the offseason, we had a conversation about who should be the number one wide receiver in this rookie class uh, in Dynasty. Would it be C.D. Lamb? Would it be Jerry Judy? You had Lamb. That looked really good at the beginning of the year. Judy is starting to come on a little bit more recently. Uh, and I would say, I don't think that it's totally random that this has happened. Judy, in the first part of the season, played almost exclusively in the slot. And uh, my feeling for a while has been that although he played in the slot, he's more than just a slot receiver. And in the past two games, they've actually played him primarily on the perimeter. And that's when we've seen him start to break out a little bit. And it's it's actually fairly similar to what we saw out of Justin Jefferson in week three with Minnesota, where in weeks one and two, he was a slot receiver. In week three, they kicked him to the perimeter and he broke out. And so I do think with the change in the way that he's used, we could see Judy sustain this a little bit. And also, he's one of the league leaders in air yards and yards after the catch combined. Uh, I mean, as long as as long as he is actually getting that type of usage and, and playing on the perimeter, uh, I do think that he has the ability to sustain what we've seen out of him in the past two to three weeks. Is what Christian Kirk is doing sustainable? I don't know, man. I, I mean, Kirk was so dynamic coming out of college. Uh, he's flashed at points. Uh, I was a big naysayer with him entering the season because I just kind of assumed with the presence of DeAndre Hopkins, there would just be fewer opportunities for Kirk. But since he returned from injury in week four, we've seen a shift towards Kirk, not as like the main weapon in the offense, but as someone who is right there with DeAndre Hopkins in terms of the targets that he's getting. And uh, I mean, he's clearly looked great since returning. It's almost impossible not to start him right now. Like remember in past seasons when Will, Will Fuller has just been like going off on one of his like month long tears, where it's just like every week, it seems like he's winning you the league. Uh, that's, that's the mode that Christian Kirk is in right now. Uh, you, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's repeatable. Uh, I don't know if it's consistent, but there's no way you can bench him right now. You know, who is going adjacent to Kirk in fantasy drafts this summer? You remember? I do not. Brandon Cooks. You love Brandon Cook because you love speed at the wide receiver position. Matthew Friedman knows that athleticism matters to wide receivers. That's why you were on John Brown. Who's more underrated, Cooks or Brown? Oh, wow. I'd have to say Cooks because he's better than Brown, but he's still thought of as a guy who isn't all that good. Uh, and we talked about him in the offseason uh, as someone who you know would be paired with a another good quarterback, this guy has just lucked into good quarterback after good quarterback throughout his career. He's like the anti Allen Robinson, you know, like Robinson going back to college. <laughs> I mean, just been punished by bad quarterbacks. Like Brandon Cooks is he's like Leonardo DiCaprio dating supermodels. Like yeah, Breeze, just, Brady, Goff, now Watson. Yeah, I mean, th this guy's just living the dream here.
but yeah, I mean, he's on his way to his fifth season of a thousand yards. Uh, and he's actually leading the team in targets. He's the number one receiver just in terms of the way that he's being used. Oh, 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 oh don't tell the Will Fuller stands. Don't do it. I mean, I love Fuller, but you know, Cooks is, he's being used, uh, like he's the number one receiver right now. Dude, Team Fuller is a vigorous presence on social media. I would watch out. I would watch out. Now, interesting rookie wide receiver situations to monitor for the rest of the year are Brandon Ayuk and T Higgins. They're both operating on the outside exclusively, right? You see Ayuk yeah. hogging the air yards over Debo Samuel, the same with Higgins hogging the air yards over Tyler Boyd. So it's a similar situation where you have a true outside X receiver and then a slot flanker and really a prototypical slot flanker paired with a prototypical slot flanker. And so I think that their careers may mirror each other as we go along, Higgins and Ayuk. But because Ayuk's quarterback is not going to be Jimmy Garoppolo for the rest of the season. I think that when Debo Samuel returns, Ayuk will fade. But there's nothing stopping this T. Higgins breakout, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's fair. A, a couple of things. One, I would say Ayuk is different in that he has that uh, after-the-catch ability and also the ability to, to, to take carries uh, that we just don't really see as much out of Higgins. Yeah, he's but, more versatile um, than Higgins. Yeah. Um, but Ayuk, I kind of favor him a little more to Higgins this year because Ooh. because I don't think he's going to have as much target competition. Even with like, Nick we don't Mullins, know, wow. We don't we don't know for sure. Well, I don't think the drop off from Garoppolo to Mullins is really all that big. Oh, but okay. We we don't know for sure when Debo is returning, and we do know for sure that Kittle is out. Uh, and so I think there could be a lot of target opportunities that we're just not going to see with Higgins uh, because of Boyd and because of the uh, annoying persistence of A.J. Green. So I lean this year a little more towards Ayuk just because Kittle is gone, but long-term, next year and beyond, I lean Higgins. That was an excellent answer. We talk about Dynasty. You prefer Higgins from Dynasty. Ayuk in seasonal leagues. If you're rebuilding in Dynasty, would you prefer to trade for IR to alpha players, Saquon Barkley, Odell Beckham, Cortland Sutton, or do you prefer trading for first-round picks? Well, I mean, as the uh, perpetual rookie optimist, uh, I, I have to go with the the first-rounders. But And I would say the, the guys that you mentioned in particular, you know, OBJ, uh, I'm just fairly skeptical on him at this point. And, and Sutton, I like him in theory, but you know, look at someone like Allen Robinson. It took him a while to get back to himself after the ACL tear. And in uh, in Denver specifically, he's going to have to compete with Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler and Noah Fant. Like those guys might squeeze Sutton out. Uh, and then what? if you look if you look at the first rounders that we have for 2021, there are enough guys there to where I would just rather take the shot on one of them coming in young and healthy than going with a guy coming off of an injury. Yeah, looking at future first rounders in particular, 2021 will be a strong class headlined by Travis Etienne. 2022 projects to be a weak class, according to Ray Garvin, the Devi expert 
here and host of the FutureCast podcast. And then look out for 2023. According to Ray Garvin, 2023 is going to be dynamite. I disagree with you in that so many Dynasty Leaguers fetishize these first-round picks and sour on these IR'd players. I'm guilty of it. I will admit it. It's a bias I have. Much easier to acquire a player with this season-ending injury and all this uncertainty around him. Oh, what's Cortland Sutton's target share going to be? How long until he's back to 100% health with the knee? That is a buying opportunity and I think a more efficient use of your capital you're unloading assets in a rebuilding mode. Ideally, you do both. Ideally, you get an IR player and a pick, but perhaps you look at less expensive players on injured reserve in deeper leagues. I traded for Tariq Cohen. You can trade for Marlon Mack. As much as it pains me, Marlon Mack is going to be a starting running back in the league again at some point, and he has an all-purpose skill set. So those would be the... those would be the area. Rather than trading for a guy with all this brand equity like Odell Beckham, you might be better off targeting picks and these underappreciated players on the IR, like a Marlon Mack, like a Tariq Cohen. I mean, Tariq Cohen's not going to have any competition in the backfield next year unless the Bears draft a running back early in 2021. We talked about how you fetishize not only picks, but also 40 times. You're not surprised at all that K.J. Hamler is incrementally breaking out, right? You expected this from Hamler because he runs a 4-3. Well, I mean, okay, I would say uh, I'm not – I don't I don't think I fetishized 40 times the way that you make it sound like, but it's uh, – Don't you remember? You were the first one to suggest that you should play Tyreek Hill in DFS. Why? The explosiveness. You could tie it back to the 40 time. Forget the dominator. Forget the breakout age. Just focus on the 40 time. Going all the way back to John Brown and before that, even T.Y. Hilton. I read those articles on Rotoviz, Matthew Friedman. All right, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I do like those, uh, those short, small, fast guys. Uh, I do think that they tend to be undervalued. And, uh, and yeah, that, I mean, that's Hamler. Um, it's Hamler. What I, liked, what I liked about him, and I should say, I was slower uh, than uh, the other Rotoviz guys to, to get onto Hamler. Um, they, they really got on him first and I looked at their work and, you know, identified him. Yeah. Like this is a guy who has potential. He has the college production. Uh, you know, he produced right away in college. Uh, he's young. He got his production in all phases. Uh, all of that has almost nothing to do with the athleticism. Even if he had just those things, that would be enough. And And early second round draft capital. He was drafted in the first half of the second round. Yeah. Yeah. And then you add the athleticism to it. And like, we don't, we don't know for sure what the 40 time is because he didn't run it at the combine. But you know, like if you, you know, quote unquote, like watch the tape, you see him running away from guys and you can look at what his 40 time was when he was a high school recruit going into college and, you know, kind of look and see how athletic he was even then. Uh, And so, yeah, his athleticism really does set him above uh, and the fact that they are now using him in the slot where he was used uh, primarily in college, uh, in previous weeks, they were using him on the outside. And I think he was miscast there just a little bit in the slot. I think he has uh, a lot of potential. So 
I also like that they're using him. They're giving him like one carry a game mm-hmm. and that might not seem like much, but like over the course of the season that could add up to like an extra hundred, 150 yards. So I like that they're using him in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And the best routes for a wide receiver to run are double moves out of the slot because you head fake to the inside and then you run the out and up. And if you have four, three wheels, it's impossible to cover that particular route, especially if you have the KJ Hamler skill set. You could argue that he's more athletic than Jalen Rager. Now, when you look at the Eagles, can Travis Fulgham hold off Jalen Rager? And regardless, what are you doing with Travis Fulgham in Dynasty? Yeah, I was um, late to the party on Travis Fulgham just because I'm I'm going to be the perpetual pessimist on someone like Fulgham. But he's he's impressed. He's looked good. And I think he does hold off Rager, at least for this year. Uh, you know, there are reports that Alshon Jeffrey is going to be practicing in full this week, which means that, you know, like, you know, which means if that actually happens, then he probably makes his season debut. But I don't I don't really think that impacts Fulgham at all. I would say the bigger thing is that you actually might have Dallas Goddard playing at something close to 100 percent health this Mm. week. I think that would probably impact Fogel more, but uh, I think he continues to be basically what we've seen. He's a guy who is uh, looking like a top 12 wide receiver when he's out there, just based on how he's being used and the production he has. Uh, I don't think that's something that continues for dynasty. So in dynasty, I would look to sell high, but uh, for redraft, I think you, you have him, you hold him and you hope that he's good enough to carry you to a championship. He's going to keep producing. So you look at your trade deadline in Dynasty and you trade Fulgham at the deadline. You squeeze as much production as you can. You let the value rise as far as it can. And then you push the trade button. You're not selling high on uh, Chase Claypool, are you? Oh, you mean your uh, your favorite tight end in this year's draft? Yeah, you're not selling high on tight end Chase Claypool. <laughs> Just stop it. No, no. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, you can't trade for him. Because whoever has him isn't going to be willing to trade him at any reasonable price. So, uh, yeah, you you aren't selling him. Uh, you just hold him and uh, you hope that he continues to develop into what we've seen out of him so far. Like, he feels like he really could be something close to DK Metcalf. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of his skill set, his athleticism. Uh, you, you hope that's what he develops into. But, yeah, I mean, if you have him... Uh, you're you're not you're not selling him. You're, I think he's closer him. to DJ Chark. This feels like DJ Chark. DJ Chark no, had performances no. last year like Chase Claypool's flashing, and neither were super productive in college. But they had that incredible size-adjusted athleticism, and that was the reason to draft them in rookie drafts and dynasty and chase the upside. That's what you need to do in the second, third, and fourth rounds of dynasty leagues. You chase the upside where in the first round, you're just locking in the assured production, ideally for workhorse back, even a Cam Akers, you're not getting it this year. And now there's a, a cloud of uncertainty around his long-term potential, but it was still good process. J.K. Dobbins, Jonathan Taylor, good process. But in the second round, you chase wide receivers that look like Chase Claypool. Worst case, they convert to tight end and they're Noah Fant. Big deal. I, I have to push back just a little bit on this uh what i consider to be blaspheme of chase claypool it's not as if he was amazingly productive in college or had multiple seasons of production 
but he was certainly productive enough. He was productive in a way that DJ Shark never was. Uh, in his final season, he had over a thousand yards receiving and 13 touchdowns at Notre Dame. Uh, you know, we didn't see anything like that out of Shark in college. Well, Shark didn't play in his senior year. Yes, correct. But uh, I'm still saying we saw college production out of Claypool that we just did not see out of Shark. And you can say that they're similar, but there's a big difference between Claypool at 238 pounds running a 4.42 and Shark at, was it like, I don't know, 215, maybe 220, but I don't think he was even that big. No, but like Shark's 205 pounds. Shark is svelte. Okay. So, okay. So there's, I mean, th- these they're guys not are totally not at similar. All what comparable. I'm saying is their production profiles and the theory of the case for drafting them in dynasty rookie drafts was similar. Okay. I, I guess, but, what? uh, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think it's, this is, I think this it's is just, different. this is just a fact. It's great. Congratulations. You won. If you have DJ Chark, you won. If you have Chase Claypool, you won. I was slow to get on board Chase Claypool. All of us are slow to get on board some players. It's okay. It's okay. As long as you don't practice take lock and you adjust your assumptions as new data comes in, then you can properly assess the situation. I'm not yet putting Claypool in the upper echelon of dynasty wide receivers like I am with the DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, even a CD Lamb. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Because when I zoom out, he doesn't check the boxes that a CD Lamb checks. Away. He's a year away. Right. I know, still we, need to see more, yeah. but I'm not saying sell high. I'm just saying hold. If you have him, hold. And if someone wants to make an offer, you better get a player in return that would have been drafted in the first round of a dynasty startup like a J.K. Dobbins or a DeAndre Swift level talent. And it is nice that Jake Luton does like DJ Chark. If Chenault misses week 10 and we know Luton likes Chark even more than Gardner Minshew, then Chark is a buy just like Austin Eckler is a buy at the running back position, right? Yeah, uh, probably. I mean, I don't want to put too much weight on what we saw last week because it was against a really bad Texas uh, or Texans secondary that was without their top corner. Um, And I mean, without Bradley Roby, who's been used in shadow coverage uh, throughout the season without him, they really have no one there. I mean, they have guys who are legit, just like victims. Uh, That's right. With shark and Conley on the outside that accounted for 20 targets last week. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't want to put too much weight on, on one game, but it is, it is promising that like that minimum, you can say it was certainly promising and you would like to see what happens this week. Hopefully, uh, Jair Alexander plays. And so we get a real test, you know, like if, if Sharks right. is able to do it That's right. against a cornerback like Alexander, uh, then that really means something. And more so importantly, that Jake yeah. Luton is willing yeah. To throw DJ Chark open. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we get that matchup this week. Julio Jones, dust. Stop it. No, he's not dust. He's not? What What would make you say, in what world is he dust? Did you see the air yards without Calvin Ridley? I heard that without Calvin Ridley, he's a lock to score 30 fantasy points. And it was a friendly matchup. And then he went out and gave you the equivalent of a Julio Jones dud. I know it was 16 plus fantasy points, but given... <laughs> The air yard share, Olamide Zacchaeus, 43.2% of 
of the air yards. Julio Jones, only 13.4% of the air yards. Woo! We're, really? We're doing this on one game? Uh, 31 no, years he, old. He's not He's not dust. He's okay, pretty much I the just same. was making sure. I don't think he's dust, but I'm just making sure. What do you think of Alameda Zacchaeus? I'm not answering that question. It was, a, it was a dumb premise to the question that you started with, and now you're just trying to pivot to another question. Let's move on. What's wrong with DJ Moore? Uh, he's not the best wide receiver on his team. Uh, that's, that's the problem. I I think he's, I think he's just as good as he was last year, but because there's someone else who can demand targets, he's not getting funneled opportunities the way that he was last season. Uh, and so that's the main problem. He's just not the best guy on his team anymore. I think he's hurt. And I think that this is a buying opportunity, especially in dynasty if anyone is discouraged, especially those on a win-now team, and you can send, say, an Adam Thielen plus to a team that has that wants to win and has DJ Moore, that's a trade that you should try to construct. Denzel Mims, any hope? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's a there's, Jet. There's the so hope. most people just see Jets and then they just dismiss him, but he played all the snaps, commanded the most air yards, more than Brashad Perriman last week, and what I saw was a glimmer of hope. Yeah, certainly. He he had the talent. I know you're asking, you're acting like it's obvious, but there are a lot of people aren't like us and understand these players, at, you know, potential so deeply. Okay. Yes. So yes, you're, you're so dismissive re- of the of the casual skeptic <laughs> who just won't roster Jets. Uh, okay. Well, out of this uh, this fake person that you've created, I, I would say, uh, look, he's only three <laughs> games into his NFL career. He was a second rounder. He produced in college. He's got great athleticism. Uh, and there's the hope that uh, Adam Gase is not the coach of this team next year. And so maybe the offense improves. But yeah, we've certainly and who seen will the quarterback of, be next year. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Right? I, I don't want to jinx it by saying anything, right? but uh, it could be it could be Trevor someone special. Lawrence to Denzel Mims, baby. You know, so yeah, I'm certainly interested in Denzel Mims. Yeah. In that trade no. where you're trading yeah. Adam Thalen. Plus for DJ Moore, get the other guy to throw in Denzel Mims. Who you got in Dynasty? You got Mims or Brian Edwards? Ooh, uh, I mm, I probably lean Mims. Um, Mims. Yeah, I, he I has lean the explosiveness. Mims. Yeah. yeah, like Edwards. Edwards has explosiveness, um, but he's just a little raw. And in that offense, I don't I don't know if anyone is going to dominate targets outside of Waller. Um, you know, like there's already rugs ahead of him. Renfro is an annoying presence in the slot who gets targeted more than he probably should. But like those targets are going to go there. Um, I just don't know if there's room for Edwards in that offense. And don't forget Mims quarterback in 2021 is going to be Trevor Is David Moore the only true handcuff wide receiver in the NFL? <laughs> I mean, I would say maybe Miko Hardman for Tyreek Hill. Oh, um, true, true. You, but, you got me. So the answer is no. The answer is there's two. One's David Moore. The other is Miko Hardman. But if you're a contender and you're nine and one heading into the fantasy playoffs in a few weeks, isn't it in your best interest to roster David Moore just in case? Yeah, I think there's the big question. So he's great. He's He's always been underused. He's always efficient with his targets, both in terms of creating yards and touchdowns. Um, But if Metcalf or Lockett were injured, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it's a slam dunk 
that he still gets enough consistent volume to be a reliable option, you know, because we could just see a situation where let's say Lockett gets injured. We could see a situation where just all the more Metcalf gets targets and we see more get a slight bump in targets, but not like ascend to the level of a locked in reliable wide receiver three. You're wrong. All the targets would go to Moore, and he is the best handcuff wide receiver I, in the NFL. I would love it. I would love it. Moore, Moore is so talented. I think he's underused within that offense. He's a true alpha. He's 220 yeah. pounds with an 80-plus really percentile is. speed score. Yeah. The, like, he, he's not – like, no one is the playmaker that Metcalf is. Oh, of course. But, but if Metcalf didn't exist within that offense, think of how good we would – everyone would think D, uh, David Moore is. Oh, my whistling. Uh, sorry, Patrick. That was just a bust. That was we gotta take that all out. God nope. damn it. Please, Patrick, leave that. Leave that in the show. God People damn deserve it. maybe in the outtakes, Patrick, but come on, man. Former Alabama tight end, Irv Smith. Is he for real? Uh, what does that mean? Like in terms of his NFL future or in terms of as a the guy two... you should start in fantasy football? Is he a tight end no. one? It's not. No. It's a very low bar to be a tight end one in fantasy nowadays. No, he's, it's just Travis Kelsey, a... Darren Waller, and uh, Robert Tonyan. He, he's not a tight end one. No, he's no. not seen enough volume to be a tight end one. But right. you know, in dynasty, he's someone still to acquire. But he was a great GPP play last week per the plays of the week email. Who's this week's Irv Smith? <laughs> I mean, is it too simple to say that Irv Smith is this week's Irv Smith? If Irv Smith is this week's Irv Smith, then Irv Smith was last week's Irv Smith, then Irv Smith's a tight end one in fantasy. He's a top 12 guy. You can't say he's the best guy, the best value every week, and then say, oh, you shouldn't be starting him in seasonal leagues. Come on. Uh, you yeah, realize I, who the number 12 tight end in fantasy football is right now? Who? Who is that? I don't know, but I'm sure he's not as good as Irv Smith, probably. I'll tell you who's in the top 10. Jimmy Graham. Surprised? Uh, no, I, I'm not surprised because that's how bad the tight end position has been this year. That's exactly right. You work at the Action Network. In fact, you're one of their flagship talents. Give us the prop of the week. I mean, Kelly, this... Like props aren't posted yet. It's not they're not posted yet. No. Okay. They, they don't post them until like Friday afternoon at the earliest. Okay. Okay. Let's ask him the question. What was the prop you took this summer that's already smashing? You know you're going to win, and in retrospect, it was so obvious. Okay, that's that's not a good one. Here's here's the the question you should ask me. Okay. What was the prop that I took last week that uh, I absolutely loved and which came back and destroyed me? Oh yes. Okay. Now, but. With all props, so you, so you know props. But with props, you also get bad beats. Give us your bad beat from last week. There must have been a prop last week that just seemed like a smash and didn't work out. Okay. Uh, I, got, I got banged both ways by Gus <gasps> Edwards here. Uh, Edwards had a prop on BetMGM of under nine and a half yards receiving. Now, I should remind everyone that entering week nine, Gus Edwards for the entire season, had zero yards receiving. <laughs> Not one reception to his name for the 2020 season, okay? And I I hit Edwards under nine and a half yards receiving as hard as I could. 
I wrote it up. I put it in the Action Network app. It went off the board very quickly after I posted it in the app. Okay. Of course, he had 11 yards receiving. Okay. So that that's one. Okay. But then also, Gus Edwards, he's not a great runner, but for that scheme, he's pretty efficient. You know, like for his career, you know, 5.2 yards per carry. Gus the bus. And, and when he's been getting action, like when he's getting carries, pretty consistently, he's been producing. And so I saw a line. I believe the line was something like 38 and a half yards rushing. And I looked at that. I looked at what Edwards is historically doing whenever he's getting, you know, 10 or more carries. This is a guy who is getting, you know, around 70 yards per game when he's getting 10 to 12, maybe 14 carries. And that's what you could reasonably project for him last week. And so I thought, hell yeah, 38 and a half. That's a bad line. Turns out he had only 23 yards rushing. I mean, these were, these were the two beats where it was like, I felt great about both of these props entering the week. And, uh, I mean, I just got nailed on both ends here. Yep. One in the mouth, one in the butt. Was not pleasant. <laughs> All right. Not the way I wanted to spend my Sunday. No, no. Bold prediction. You know it. I know it. It's the end of the show. You've been great. This is one of the most informative and fun shows of the season so far. I appreciate your time. I'm getting you out of here, but I do need that bold prediction. One of the most? Which, which show? up to this point has been more informative than this one. Listen, we were so self-involved talking about my Twitter account that for me, this was by far and away the best show <laughs> in the history of this podcast. But okay, for the there we audience, go. I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the audience. I mean, they might not find it as enjoyable as I do because I like talking about myself so much. And then us talking about it together was just no, blissful. I'm just, I'm just giving you, I'm just giving you a hard time. And, and Matt Kelly, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I wasn't always so smooth as a podcaster, you know, starting out uh, I've been told I was rather rough, you know, it, it's, it's a monotone voice. I, I can't help. I come by it naturally, but uh, anyway, you know, I, I, I've gotten, I've gotten a little more polished so I, I can understand though. I, I told you that. I know. I, I know. told, I'm the one that told you that. I know. I know. It was our little inside joke. I yes. told you that. I told you that you've improved leaps and bounds and you took offense to that. But that was a compliment because this is work, what we do in front of these microphones. And you worked very hard at your craft, just like you're working hard to improve your social media presence and your clout on social media. You work to improve your style as a broadcaster and no one has come further since they started than Matthew Friedman in this business. That is such a backhanded compliment, but I, I will take it. And by the way, the story, the story is that it's not like you said, hey, Matt, you've come a long way since you started podcasting. How it was wrapped up was I was doing a show a couple of weeks ago with someone and we were talking and this person said, hey, uh, you know, Matt Friedman, he used to suck at podcasting, but he's gotten a lot better. That's the way that it was framed when you were talking with me. And so immediately I'm thinking like, okay, well, that's sort of a backhanded compliment, but whatever. But like, hey, who is this? Who is this? Who on your show was, uh, you know, before the mics were on saying, you know, that uh, I, I used to suck at podcasting, which by the way, I totally did. And, and I probably still do. You do. You're really good. What are you talking about? N now you've lost me. W what do you mean? I've lost you. I, 
we in, we were talking about you in the outtakes in, on a show? No, not in the outtakes, but before you started recording, you and a guest. Uh-huh. At least this is what you told Cabin and I before jumping onto the Road of Viz podcast oh. that you had had a conversation with a guest. That's right. Off air. That's and right. And that's how all of this came up. That's right. I don't remember who the guest was. I don't. I wish I did. I don't. I don't know if that guest actually existed. I don't even know. I don't even know. It could have all been a figment of my imagination. It was all in service of a larger truth, which is your improvement is second to none. Again, thank you for that wonderful compliment. I, I do appreciate it. You know, it's like the at, at camp, you know, like these little like arts and crafts camps when like some kid wins like most improved, like that kid still sucks. You don't suck. There's others that suck now. You're not in that group. Not that you ever really sucked. Remember, you were always better than the worst. The worst in this business have no shot. The worst podcasters are going to get flushed out after they cap out at 10 listeners and it's just excruciating to listen to. You were always better than them. So you started at a baseline that was above the typical entry point and then you rose up to a level where you're in charge of all Rotovis podcasts and your presence is felt on the Action Network podcast platform and you're hosting flagship shows and driving some of the most efficient content programming and all of fantasy football. It, am I am I not this isn't good enough? Oh, this is this is fantastic. This is great. And I just really kind of wanted to give you a hard time and make you nervous. And, and by the way, I should say uh, I, I, uh, I was bad. I really was bad in the early days with John Moore. He like, right before we would start recording, he'd be like, and, uh, I really need you to kind of be a little more enthusiastic this episode. Right. <laughs> like, no, no, you have, yeah, you, there was, yeah. there's some, you found this switch in your gut. I, I, I know it's right here. I know where the switch is right here. It's right in here, right under that rib right there. There's a little switch that you can switch on. And even if you're not feeling energetic or enthusiastic, you can switch that little that little button there under your rib, and you can find that energy for a show. Yeah. Anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. Even the yeah. most low-energy person can find that. You just have to be cognizant of the need to be enthusiastic and upbeat during a podcast. Certainly, you can go to a place where you sound depressed me with Jonathan Taylor last week, but the overall tone of the show has to be more uplifting than it is depressing. Well, let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. Give us a poll prediction. At the end of the season, the number one receiver in the league in yardage is Terry McLaurin. Let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. Give us a bold prediction. At the end of the season, the number one receiver in the league in yardage is Terry McLaurin. Oh, the callback. (sighs) 
that was a marathon. Should I mean I'm not gonna obviously tell you how to uh, <clears throat> how to you know cut your shit, but do you guys just want to do the type of thing where you have two episodes, like the first episode, like cut the first half where it's just us talking about your Twitter? And then one, because that can go out at any time. And then uh, the, no, we're gonna. The, I'm gonna. I have another guy that cuts uh, highlights. Okay. And I'm gonna have him do the Twitter thing as its own thing for YouTube. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's a great idea. No, no. So yeah, we'll do that. I, I wasn't thinking about that, but you saying that, we should do that. Okay. Yeah, it's a great idea. But but as far as cutting that out and get it, giving people football content right off the jump, fuck no. They've got to listen okay. to us do our thing first. They've got to. They've got to earn it, dude. It's, it's gonna be a, a super episode. Yeah, they've got to earn it. Okay. So, and again, that's just you know the the what I wanted to what I want to create. I, I should have mentioned this earlier. What I want to create is this clubhouse. And once you know the way to get to the clubhouse, once you know, understand the path to get there, it feels like an accomplishment. Like, oh, I get the show. Oh, I get the persona. Oh, I get what's going on here. And it creates a longer term engagement and it fosters this notion of super fans that you don't get when you just get down to business and you're always just down the middle with your content. I didn't read a book on this. There's no study of social media. There's no study of media. This is this is how that works. But my sense is that that's what we're creating just based on the feedback from all the, the patrons and what I've deemed to be super users. Yep, that makes sense. You're always being recorded. I, I assumed. I mean, this will uh, doubtlessly not surprise you, but I don't really prep for your show. Whenever I, I come on, I mean, I look at the outline uh, once just to make sure I feel like I have something to say. But uh, this time I actually did spend time uh, prepping for it, kind of thinking about answers. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, it set, I'm it set happy my about that. Uh, schedule behind. So I, I instantly regretted it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I prepped. I um I I, found, I I realized that we need to talk about uh, Jakeem Grant. Yeah, we do. He's he's relevant, dude. He's I your know. guy. I forgot he I was know. your guy. Yeah. I mean, Jakeem I didn't forget. Dream. I clearly remembered. I remember people comparing um, Antonio Gibson to Kalen Balage this off season. Remember that? Was I was I the person who did that? No. Okay. People were though. Just, okay. just nameless, just, faceless people. I just had to I had to check. I mean, it no. didn't sound like something I would say. but no. You never know. Nameless, faceless people. Josh Allen. Holy shit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it. What time is it? It's 2.30 your time, right? Yeah. So I have a uh, a hard-ish stop mm. at uh, 3.45. Mm. 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 That should be enough. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 Let's go. All right. So let's just get into it. Sorry it was so long, Patrick. <laughs> Who would you consider droppable that would surprise people? I don't know. I, I don't have. I'm gonna go back and delete that question. Don't say anything. Don't say. I don't. I didn't even want to ask that question. I have such great instincts. I was not going to ask that question, but then you mentioned that you prepared, and I didn't want to disappoint you by not asking a question you had prepared for. But then I went ahead and asked the question, and it turns out that was one of the questions you hadn't prepared for. Well, I, I prepared for it. My answer was something okay, like maybe T.Y. Hilton. Hilton. Of course, T.Y. Hilton's like, droppable. Never, never like, mind. That's not, going, it's not going good. in the outtakes. But I have a new producer. Patrick. Patrick, this is going in the outtakes. I'm just going to say it out loud, Patrick. It's, if this finds its way in the show, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> Everyone, 
would think D uh, David Morris. Oh, my whistling. Wait, wait. Uh, sorry, Patrick. That was just a bust. That was. We gotta take that all out. God damn it, Patrick. Leave God that. Leave that in Maybe the show. in the People outtakes, deserve Patrick. To hear that. But come on, man. I'm gonna fire you. <laughs> You're wrong. If Irv Smith is this week's Irv Smith, then Irv Smith was last week's Irv Smith. Then Irv Smith's a tight end one in fantasy. He's a top twelve guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, talk, talk dirty to me. I'm not answering that question. It was a, it was a dumb premise to the question that you started with. And now you're just trying to pivot to another question. Let's move on. Why do you have to be such a dick? And I say that with great respect. <laughs> Would you want anyone else doing this? Could anyone else do it as well as I do? Pretty consistently good at it. No, 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 no. If this finds its way in the show, I'm going to fire you. If I had to think about a tweet to get people to hate me, I don't know if I could come up with a better tweet than this one. Yep, one in the mouth, one in the butt. Uh... is a fantasy content colossus that you are one of the best dickheads in the fantasy industry. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's a monotone voice. I, I can't help. I come by it naturally, but uh, anyway, you know, I, I, I've gotten, I've gotten a little more polished, so I, I can understand though. I anyway. told you that your site is amazing. I got banged <gasps> both ways. Yep. One in the mouth, one in the butt. If this finds its way in the show, I'm going to fire you.